Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight we've got some real surprises. Hard-hitting journalist Mike Wallace as a pitchman for peanut butter on Sky King. A leading inventor of radio sound effects on the Columbia Workshop. Hint, it wasn't a man. Rogers of the Gazette. That would be Will Rogers, Jr. And, in honor of Women's History Month, a Destination Freedom tribute to the person who might be on the $20 bill one day. It's no surprise to hear Gunsmoke and Dragnet, but how about the First Nighter program? And a tribute to the inventor of the interview show. Really. Say, with all that on tap, you need to relax, forget about the troubles of last week, ignore the worries of the week ahead, And instead, turn your imagination loose here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. One thing we know about great fictional detectives, they don't jump to conclusions. Or do they? Check out The Wrong Idea Matter. It comes from April 15, 1962. CBS and a really great detective, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. I don't think you're going to like this, Johnny. No? No, sir. Oh, it can't be that bad. Can't, huh? What you don't know won't hurt you, they always say. Oh, they do. And since I don't know what you're talking about or even who you are... Huh? Oh, sorry. I kind of got ahead of myself. A little ahead of me, too. This is Tim Harrington, Johnny. Down in Knoxville, Tennessee? Yes, sir. Eternity Mutual Insurance Company. Well, how are you, Tim? What's this I'm supposed to start losing sleep over? Alpheus Brannigan. Brannigan? Now, don't tell me you've forgotten him. Wait a minute. At least I hope you haven't. That hot-headed young kid who got five to seven for embezzlement a while back. That's right. About three years ago. You yourself ran him down for us. Sure, I remember now. On a tip you got from that pretty young wife of his. Yes, Mary, uh, Marilyn was her name. Nice girl and pretty, too. And do you remember what Alpha had to say when the judge tossed that sentence at him? Oh, the usual yak about getting even, wasn't it? That sort of thing? Getting even not only with you, Johnny, but with her. And that poor kid has been worried about the day he'd get out ever since the day he went in. Well, he still has a couple of years to go, hasn't he? So what's the big rush? He has not. What? Alpha Brannigan got out of the pen a couple weeks ago. No kidding. Made a break? A smart kid like that? No, sir. He just made like an angel for a while, and they gave him all that time off for so-called good behavior. You ask me, Johnny, they were suckers. Because if you really remember that boy... Yeah, I, um, I see what you mean. And his wife is a client of ours. You mean he's already got to her? I don't know. Well, somebody better contact her and find out. That's why I'm calling you, Johnny. What do you mean? Haven't you been in touch with her? No, we can't find her. But if he does get to her before you do, I... Say no more, Timmy. I'm on my way. Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. (laughs) 
expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Eternity Mutual Insurance Company, Knoxville, Tennessee office. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the wrong idea matter. Expense account item one. Six dollars for a cab to the airport and fifty-eight thirty-six for a plane ticket. Four and a half hours later, we sat down at McGee Tyson Airport some 12 miles southeast of Knoxville. So, item two is $1.35 for limousine service that dropped me off at Tim Harrington's front door. Hi, Johnny. Glad you could make it. Hi, Tim. Sit down. Sit down. I'll get right to this. All right. Now, Tim, let's get one thing straight. I know. I know, Johnny. Marilyn Brannigan's policy has a face value of only $7,500. Now, on account of what happened with her husband, she's named her brother Charlie over in Memphis beneficiary. Well, that isn't what I was about. But a client's a client, and we got to protect her if we aren't too late. Too late for what? For what? Johnny. Now, listen, Tim. When you've heard as many of those wild courtroom threats as I have, well, after a while, you just don't pay too much attention to them anymore. Well, I do. I was right there in that courtroom. So was I. I not only heard what Alfred Brannigan said, but I saw the way that he said it. He was just a hot-headed kid. You know that, Tim. I can see it in my mind's eye right now. After the judge hit him with that sentence, he turned around real slow. And with a look on his face like I've never seen before. It was cold as ice, Johnny. Like, like a snake. Not a body in the courtroom made a sound. Tim. He looked across at that brand new little wife of his, Marilyn. She was sitting there in the front row with her head down. He just stared at her until she looked up at him. I know, Tim. And then without moving a muscle except in his mouth, he said... Now look, Tim. He said, just remember one thing, Marilyn. One of these days I'm going to get out again. And when I do, he said, you'll see. Well, okay, but... Then he turned over to where you sat. And that goes for you too, Dollar. For you too, he said. Just a red-headed, hot-headed, excitable kid. Not when he said that, he wasn't. He was cold as ice, Johnny. He wasn't kidding. All right, Tim, so what? The first time she paid him a visit there at the pen, he told her he was sorry. No, sir. He tried to be a good boy. He said somehow make up for what he'd done. No, sir. It always happened. No, sir, you're wrong, Johnny. 100% wrong. Am I? Because in all that time up there, she never saw him once. Not once? Not once. And you know why? Why? Because he wouldn't let her. Because he wouldn't see her. Wouldn't have anything to do with her. No letters, no nothing. And that's why in all these last couple of years, when I've talked to her, she's been just plain worried sick. And a couple of weeks ago when he got out, well, that's when she called me up and asked me what she ought to do. You mean that she still hadn't heard anything from him? Even when he got out? Not a word. Well, what'd you tell her, Tim? To notify the police. Mm -hmm. And I notified him, too. And then late yesterday, I got this call from Sergeant Piper. Yeah. And he tells me that she's suddenly gone, disappeared, to parts unknown. Has there been any sign of him around? No, sir. And don't you worry. If he had been around, Sergeant Piper and his boys would have known it. Are you sure of that? Well, they were gunning for Alpha Brannigan like nobody they ever gunned for before. But she got away without their knowing how or where. Well, yes, but, Johnny, you got to find that girl and keep her alive. Well, look, Tim. Yes? Yes, Johnny? Well, I'll do the best I can. Good. And, uh, Johnny. Yeah? Now, just you remember one thing. What's that? You better look out for yourself, too. Oh, sure.
I walked over to the precinct headquarters where Tim said I could find Sergeant Seymour Jefferson Piper. Unlike any police officer I dealt with in the past there in Knoxville, Piper was a big, lazy, florid man of about 50 and 220 pounds who sat with his feet on the desk chewing a stale, unlighted cigar. Uh, sure, Miss Dollar. I'm completely in charge of that Brannigan thing. And, um... You have found no trace at all of the girl? Now, I know, Miss Dollar, I know exactly what you're thinking. But just because she got out of town without our knowing it don't mean that he could have gotten himself in without our knowing it. And I wondered. Well, I don't. I don't wonder at all. I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Not a single lead on her, hmm? Well, you see, she had her own car. She was a kind of accountant, you know, for one of the big markets. And doing pretty good for herself. Had her own car. You know the license number of that car? Well, sure. It's U double L one six six. Did you put out an APB right away all over the set? Well, no, sir. Why not? Well, she ain't guilty of any crime, Miss Dollar. I mean, like he was once. What's the matter with you, Sergeant? Isn't it just as important to find her and protect her as it is to run her down if she's done something wrong? Well, yes, sir. Well, of course it is. And we did try to protect her as long as she was around here. Well, Sergeant... But when, uh, when he didn't even show up, and after all that time, two whole weeks, Miss Dollar... Well, don't you, you know why? Because he was probably smart enough to realize that she'd have some kind of protection for a while. He may not be any mental giant, but he isn't any dumbbell either. Well, I know. To have a clear field, he'd wait until people stopped worrying about him. Until they get tired of waiting for him and ease up. And that's exactly what you did, Sergeant. Ease up. Get lackadaisical. I'll just hold on there a minute. Well, isn't that why she was able to leave him right under your nose? Well, and you know what else I think? Now, you look here. One of you two were... things. Either she realized your watching over her was getting more casual, more slipshod, and she'd have to look out for herself. Oh, now, miss. Or else, Sergeant, and I'm afraid it's a lot more probable, Alfie Brannigan did get through to her and haul her away. But if he's got to her, sir, well, don't you remember what he said there in court? Did you forget it? Up till just now? Well, of course not. Well, why haven't you done something about her disappearance? Well, I told you, sir. You haven't told, told me anything that makes any sense. Let me have the telephone. Now, just a minute. What are you fixing to do? Well, first I'm going to call the state police. And if they can't find her somewhere in the state, I'll call in the FBI. You, you don't think much of this department, do you? If I have to answer that, let me have the phone. You sure don't know how to ask for cooperation, do you? Listen, Sergeant. Over the years, I've had cooperation from the Maxwell Police Department second to none. By acting up this way? By dealing with members of the force who have a little sense of responsibility beyond that involved in chasing crooks. Now, just... By men who can think beyond what's right under their noses. Uh... By men who... Uh, I'm just wasting my time here. What's the name of your lieutenant? Now, now just, just a minute, sir. Yes, what for? I guess, uh, I guess maybe you're right, sir. I, I mean about an APB. It isn't too late. So I'll, uh, well, believe me, Miss Dollar, I'll get one out right away. And I'll include in the state police, like you say, as well as all the other big cities in the state. You will? Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. And I, uh... I apologize, Miss Dollar, for... Well, I was wrong, and I'm admitting it, so just give me a chance, uh, if you please. Sergeant? And where do I get in touch with you when I get some word? If you do. Yes, sir. Mr. Dollar? No, I'll be staying at the Andrew Johnson. Thank you, sir. And I'll call you, sir. You better. Mm -hmm.
Now, if things had been handled properly, one of the local police would be here right now. But since he isn't, uh, where's your phone? Oh, I haven't any here. The nearest one is at the filling station two blocks down. Oh. All right. I'm going over there and call the police. And meantime, if I were you, I would keep this door closed and locked. Yes, I will. And Mr. Dollar? Yeah. When you do find him, at least find out before you do anything to him or hurt him. Oh, sure. Don't worry about it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, now, that's the first kiss I've had since, uh... I'm sorry. I guess I shouldn't have... But you're the first one that... Sure, sure. That's okay. I'll, uh, I'll get everything set up and see you later. Thank you. Oh, boy, it is dark out here. I could use a street lamp or two. And... Just a minute, Mr. Flynn. Alfie. Who are you? Alfie Brannigan. Yeah. That's right. Ah, it's me. Um... I came to in the front seat of my rental car. The young policeman was gently slapping me with one hand, with the other shoving a bottle of smelling salts, I guess, under my nose. <laughs> That's it, Mr. Dollar. You have another sniff of this and you'll be just fine. Oh, no, thanks. That's that's fine. Whatever you say. Y'all okay now? Oh, well, well, I don't know. I, uh... Yes, sir. Somebody must have hit you pretty hard. You just take it easy for a little bit. No, no. Listen, officer. Yes, sir? Uh, inside there in that house. Sergeant must have been wrong. Nobody in that house, Mr. Dollar. What? Well, you see, Sergeant Piper over to Knoxville, he called me. Yeah. He said that Ms. Marilyn Brannigan... And that he got her. He got to her. You mean Alfie, her husband? That's right. He's been here? Yes. Well, and I'll shoot myself because a car pulled away when I come down the street. Must have been him. And he must have had her in it. All right, now look. Yes, sir? You have a radio in your car? Uh, doggone transmitter blew out when I tried to call in about finding you here all beat up. All right, listen. Oh, here. What? Your wallet with your credentials. There's a lion there beside you. Oh, Alfie must have taken it out of my pocket when he found out who I was. Uh, thanks, anyway. All right, look, get on back to headquarters, will you? And get on the horn and... Oh, uh, do you have a license number and description of that car? Oh, yes, sir. Good. And go to it and get the word out. I'll either be with Sergeant Piper at his precinct or at the Andrew Johnson Hotel over in Knoxville. Yes, sir. Driving was torture. By the time I got back to Knoxville, I was feeling pretty shaky. I dropped in on Sergeant Piper, thanked him for having finally alerted the Jefferson City Police, told him to get on the ball again, and then, just barely able to navigate, got up to my room at the Andrew Johnson. Oh, I guess I left the lights on. Yes, sir, you did. What? And you left the door wide open, too. Alfie. And me, Mr. Dollar. What? All right now, Brannigan. No, no, please, please, sir. Now, let me explain about why we came here. He came back to me, Mr. Dollar, to the cottage. Oh, you're telling me. Well, I didn't know. I, I didn't know who you were when you when you came out of the cottage. I, and I'm sorry. You didn't know him. No, Mr. Dollar. No. But I, I saw you there in the doorway, and 
And, well, I, I saw her kiss you, and, and and I heard you say you'd get everything all set and be back. And, well, after all I'd done for her, and thinking maybe she'd taken up with somebody else while I was gone... But I've explained to him now. After all you've done for her, Alfie? Oh, he's wonderful, Mr. Dollar. He's so wonderful. I knew he was. I knew it all the time. It just had to be that way. Uh, don't, don't you see, sir, it was the least I could do after the way I'd let her down by taking that money three years ago. Look, uh, what do you say we try and make a little sense around oh, here? Maybe I was wrong not seeing her and not answering her letters, but I had to do it alone. I had to work it out for myself. I had to prove I could be worthy of her all by myself. And he has, Mr. Dollar. Mm-hmm. Alfie. You see, I meant it, sir, uh, what I said back there in court. That, that I'd show her and I'd show you, too. That I could make up for that crazy embezzling. Don't you understand? That's what he meant. And I did it, sir. I I worked. I studied there in prison every day. I worked to improve myself. And when I got out, so I I could prove to her I'd done right by her, I went to her brother over in Memphis. My brother, Charlie. Mm -hmm. Because he'd always liked me, and I knew he'd help me, and and without letting on to her until I was ready. (laughs) You see, I knew he'd understand, and he did. And you know what Alfie's done in just these last two weeks? A steady job over there. A decent place for us to live, the way we ought to. And away from all these memories. Now we can start out married all over again, the the right way. Like I should have made it for us before. It's a whole new start, Mr. Dollar. And a clean start. And it's still only half of what a girl like Marilyn deserves. Isn't it wonderful, Mr. Dollar? Well. Yes, Alfie? Sir? Sir? You, um, you want to be sure of uh, keeping it that way? Oh, believe me, sir. I will keep it that way. All right. Then, uh, one thing. Remember to keep that temper of yours in check, huh? Yes, sir. Even when you see your wife kissing another man. I will, sir. I promise. I hope so. And I'm, I'm sorry. I'm really terribly sorry for what I did. Well, that's all right. To have a case end like this for a change, maybe it was worth it. Thank you, sir. Yes, Mr. Dollar. Thank you. Now, um, how would you two like to help me over onto that bed? Well, you know something? Sure, those two are even younger than they realize, but... I think maybe those kids will do all right. I hope so. Anyway, expense account total, including a doctor who came in to make sure that I was all in one piece. Hotel, mileage on the car, and uh, the trip back to Hartford. $229.57. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. to tell you about next week's story. Next week, the most clever device for covering up a murder I have ever seen. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Dollar is written by Jack Johnstone, produced and directed by Bruno Zerato Jr. Music supervision by Ethel Huber. 
Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Jim Z. Summers as Marilyn, Lawson Zerby as Sergeant Piper, Richard Holland as Alfie Brannigan, Herb Duncan as Tim Harrington, and Bill Lipton as the policeman. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Art Hannah speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, and The Wrong Idea Matter from the spring of 1962 and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. During this Women's History Month, tributes to famous women abound. But how about tributes to once-famous women? For example, if you were looking for feminist pioneers in broadcasting, you might focus on one of the most significant, a woman nearly unknown nowadays, Mary Margaret McBride. She was a farm girl from Missouri who grew up to be one of the highest-paid print journalists in New York and then a towering figure in American culture in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Ms. McBride... Actually, she insisted on being called Mary Margaret, has had a gigantic influence. It's not too much to say that she and her partner, Stella Karn, virtually invented the talk interview show. Without Mary Margaret, there may well not have been a Barbara Walters, Terry Gross, or WAMU's own Diane Rehm. Her closest parallel today in terms of audience loyalty and cultural impact would be Oprah Winfrey. Like Mary Margaret, Ms. Winfrey has her own company producing shows that include features and her own ad-lib interviews with a grand variety of guests, reaching an enormous audience. At one point, Mary Margaret's daily daytime audience was between 6 and 8 million, a huge number back then, accounting for some 20% of radio listeners. There's much more to say about Mary Margaret McBride, who was still broadcasting in upstate New York when she passed away in 1976. We'll feature clips of some of her interviews here on the big broadcast in the coming months. For now, we're going to hear her with another famous interviewer who clearly admired her, Mike Wallace. Before he was a CBS 60 Minutes star, Mr. Wallace had his own interview show, and in 1957, three years after she'd left her network radio show, Mary Margaret McBride sat down with him to discuss her career and her recently departed partner, Stella Karn. The audio's from an old TV kinescope, so please make allowances as we listen to the First Lady of Radio, Mary Margaret McBride, as she appeared on June 16, 1957, and the ABC TV program, The Mike Wallace Interview. The Mike Wallace Interview. Good evening, I'm Mike Wallace. My guest has been called the First Lady of Radio. She has interviewed on radio some 30,000 persons since 1934. Mary Margaret McBride has been a gentle trailblazer all her life. While most of her friends were looking for husbands, she left Paris, Missouri to track down newsbeats as a reporter in New York City during the Roaring Twenties. Beginning in 1934, she spearheaded radio journalism by interviewing ex-convicts and statesmen, burlesque queens and society matrons, with a single-minded dedication that gave her virtually no time at all for a private life. Let's try to find out, among other things, why she has done it. Mary Margaret, according to the Kansas City Star, 
on March 13, 1955, you said on the evening of March 12, 1955, out in Kansas City, you said the following. Had I married the first man I was engaged to and settled here in Missouri, I would have made my children miserable. I would have reminded them that if it wasn't for them, I'd be famous in New York. Now then, why, seriously now, why was being famous here in New York City so all-out important to you? Don't you understand that? Any, any ham understands that. You know very well you understand it. You're it, confessing to being a ham and you're calling me one as one and the same. No. We're both hams, honey. We're both hams. <laughs> and uh, that was it. How I got to be a ham, born on a farm in Missouri, I don't know, but I did. And it, it was the one thing I wanted, to be famous. And yet, at the same time, you were willing to sacrifice a lot of other things for that hamdom. But I didn't know. Famous. I didn't know I was sacrificing. It was so important. You don't know mm -hmm. at the time. The drive was there, and you stayed with it. Yes. Well, now, chances are, some 30, 35 years later, that you're typical of a good many career women who have chosen that career instead of a family. You once said, Mary Margaret, and this was in the Woman's Home Companion back in April of 49, you said, my programs are my whole life. And though you admitted that it was a temporary kind of thing, you described your interviews on radio as conversational love affairs. Now then, have these conversational love affairs been worth devoting virtually your entire life to? You've worn me down, Mike. What do you mean? Well, you had me on one other time mm -hmm. when you were local, and uh, I said that there had been enough. Now I'm not so sure. I think you just wore me down. What do you mean? I had you on the local show about uh, six months ago. Yes. At that time, you were convinced that everything was fine. It had been worth it. Now you really mean that you changed your mind? I really mean that I, I wonder about it, and I suppose I always did wonder about it. I suppose any woman wonders. But as you know, my life has changed somewhat. I had a business partnership that, <laughs> well, that kept me going at the kind of thing I was doing, mm -hmm. made it possible. Uh, you know, I'm not a tough person. You're not? I'm the kind of person, Mike, who absolutely says to you or anybody else what I really think at the time. And in business and in television and radio, too, you don't. You say a dozen other things first, and then finally you come to whatever is your real answer. I don't know how to do that. Well, now, Mary Margaret, I think perhaps we're arriving at something here. You said six months ago one thing. You've changed your mind a little bit. Is it television that has got you down. Here was a woman who, for a period of a quarter of a century, talked to virtually everybody in the United States of consequence, had a chance to talk, to draw them out, and so forth. You were the first lady of radio. Is the, the feeling of a lack of fulfillment now due simply to the fact that television has not proved to be your great golden road? I think probably. But I think just the thought, you know, Stella Klein, Fended off the, the blows, the things that you have to take. Stella Karn, of course, was your good friend and manager for years and years and years. Who died about two and a half months ago. And uh, when I, uh, when I uh, talked to you, I knew she was very ill, but I, I didn't know that she was fatally ill. I thought she'd beat the thing. She had cancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
I, I was talking then about what I really love. I, I do love the, the job. I love interviewing people. I love those love affairs on the air. Well, the, kind, the kind of fame, the kind of career that you pursued, Mary Margaret, was it not at all a lonely life for a woman? Yes. Has it not been? And has the one been worth the loneliness? Has the career been worth the loneliness? It, it was up to a point. Now I'm not sure. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm just in a very uncertain state of mind, and I'm not sure whether I think that those 20 years when I was interviewing people, it was very worthwhile. Mm -hmm. I worked to all hours, and now and then people would pity me. They'd say, why do you do this? You never have any fun. Why don't you have fun? What's life for? And I would... And I would kind of pity myself a little. I'd think, gee, why do I do this? And then one time I just analyzed it. And I suddenly knew this is what I like. I think that everybody has tried to figure how I could do it. You read those early pieces. I did. About me. They called me a phenomenon. And you could just tell that these sophisticated people were thinking, how does this female do it? Here she is, really dumb, they thought. And she stutters and stammers around and stumbles all over the place. And yet, here are these women that will buy the things she says for them to buy. And they never took in account the men. And I had a lot of men listeners, too, doggone. Well, what's happened to all this now? Tell me. What's Did happened? Just... Yes. Well, three years ago, uh, we gave up the interview programs. Why? And we didn't because of Stella. Because of Because Stella. she was no longer able to fight as she'd been fighting mm -hmm. uh, to to carry this on. And uh, and I want to tell you that those three years were very difficult years. Mary Margaret, you once said, according to Sidney Field's column in the uh, Daily Mirror, back in 53, you said, age teaches you that the values you once thought were corny are not corny. Now, specifically, what values did you mean? Well, I think perhaps I told you that when I first came to New York, the people I liked did all sorts of things that I thought were almost wicked. And yet I thought, because these people did them, they're the things I must learn to do. And they gossiped, and they were often unkind, they were sarcastic, they were all kinds of things. And now I know that kindness and decency and, and that the kind of things I was taught are the real things. As you get older, you just know that. Mm. I don't care if I'm called corny now at all. What I don't understand about you, Mary Margaret, is this. You keep talking as though as though you don't have much confidence in yourself. I have none. But why? Here is a woman, here you are, a person who has contributed so much to so many people through so many years. You've gotten personal acclaim. You've had professional success. You have good friends. You have the respect of your peers in this business and the respect of your friends out of the business. And yet you, you seem to feel unfulfilled. Why? I wouldn't know, I suppose. I, I always have the feeling that they'll find out that I'm not as good as they thought, and it'll all end. And it went on and on, and they didn't yeah. for good while. You are now 58 years old. Not quite. Not quite. As I said before, you have personal acclaim, professional success, good friends. What do you want for yourself from here on? I would like work 
that I love and that I enjoy doing and that will give service at the same time. I would like personal relationships that satisfy me. I think I would like to be very important to somebody. I think everybody wants to be very important to at least one person. I'm sure of that. And I, I would like very much to, uh, to be doing things that give, that help the world be a little bit better place. As you get older, that, that matters to you. To my surprise, really. Bless you, Mary Margaret, and thank you for coming here tonight. Thank you. A girl from Paris, Missouri, Mary Margaret McBride. One of the most important figures in broadcasting history, Mary Margaret McBride, speaking with Mike Wallace on his TV show, The Mike Wallace Interview, in the late spring of 1957. As I mentioned, we'll hear more from Mary Margaret later this year here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. We're going to hear more from Mike Wallace, too, but we don't have to wait more than a minute. Before he became the hard-hitting TV interviewer we know from his long career at CBS News, he made quite a mark in radio, and not just in news. He acted, he did comedy with Spike Jones, and he served as a staff announcer for a variety of shows. He even appeared in a Broadway play in 1954. One of those announcing jobs was on a kid's show, Sky King, an exciting mashup of a traditional Western and an aviation series. Well, it was exciting to me, anyway, when I was watching the TV version that lasted for almost all of the 1950s, the first few years coexisting with the radio series. While I never did hear that radio show as a kid, I did hear Earl Nightingale, who stars as the title character in the Sky King episode we're about to hear. Mr. Nightingale, you see, found great success as a motivational speaker, and his radio series, Our Changing World, was widely syndicated and ran well into the 1970s. We'll hear Mike Wallace not only as the story's narrator, but also as the pitch man for Peter Pan Peanut Butter, a fact I was eager to share with you just to see if I could say pitch man for Peter Pan Peanut Butter without popping a pea into the microphone. From April 12th, 1951, it's a properly enthusiastic and melodramatic Mike Wallace in an episode called The Lady Sheriff. Did I mention that it's Women's History Month? From the Mutual Network and the series Sky King. Hi, gang. This is Peter Pan. Every day when Pooh's out, reach up on the shelf. Grab that jar of Peter Pan and treat yourself. Peter Pan Peanut Butter presents... Hi, King... Lady Sheriff. In the early morning darkness, the Flying Crown Ranch is surrounded by headlights from cars and jeeps. Overhead, a plane cruises slowly, flashing a searchlight back and forth over the bleak prairie. And a strange rider brings her mount to a halt in the foothills overlooking the ranch house. Whoa, Indian boy, whoa. Strange rider, indeed, an elderly woman. Astride a ridden out Palomino, dressed in elaborate western clothes, and in her belt, two pearl handled six shooters. 
Not a good diamond. She scans the countryside, smiles, then wheels the weary mount down toward the ranch house when suddenly several riders come out of the darkness. Thank you! Swift as lightning, the majestic old lady's hands reach for the diamond-studded six-shooters and... Ah! Look out! Take cover! Race. Two of her men tricked. They're all right. She won't go far. Come on, she's heading for King's Ranch House. Right. We got it surrounded. Let's start fighting. Hey, Sky. Yeah. Were you making all that noise, Sheriff? Have you seen a rider around here tonight? No. Been asleep, Sheriff. This racket woke us up. Our men are searching the stable for Bob, Sheriff. Huh? Had a trap in the hills back there, but she shot her way out. She shot her way out? Wing, two of my best men. Sky, this is going to be hard to believe, but it's Lady Alice we're hunting. Lady Alice? But, Sheriff, there must be some mistake. That's what I thought, too, Sky. But there's a statewide alarm to be on the lookout for the lady. You bet there is. She's run out with $60,000 worth of diamonds. My diamonds, and I aim to get them back. Well, who is Lady Alice? A walking legend, honey. Yeah, she's one of Arizona's earliest settlers. She's been sheriff of Flintridge County for half a century. Yes, and our cork and good sheriff, too. We could have trapped anyone else with roadblocks, but not Lady Alice and that Palomino of hers. Oh, I can't believe it. The law hunting down Lady Alice, why, she's as honest as... I'll tell you how honest she is, King. And who are you? Name's Trent. I staked out a diamond claim and went to Flintridge County to get stockholders to put up money to mine the claim. To show my good faith, I gave my diamond samples to Lady Alice's security. And look what happened. The lady always was crazy about diamonds, Guy. Those diamonds started revolvers in the Navy, home. but she wouldn't steal diamonds, Sheriff. She must have an accomplice somewhere, Sheriff. Couldn't hope to get away with this alone. And she was heading for the flying crown. Look here, Trent. I don't know why she was heading here, but I do know Sky King, the most honest man alive. Hey, and sir, if you... come here, quick. We'll be found something in the stable. Uh, something or someone. Come on. Should string her up for this. Sky, if Lady Alice is mad, I want cover. She shoots straighter than a porcupine quill. Now, here we are. Right in here. and she's getting away. It's almost daylight, Sheriff. The lady can't go far on a horse. Between Trent's plane and the songbird, we should be able to stop her. Good idea, Sky. Penny, yeah? go warm up the songbird. Yeah, sure. I'm starting after her on my plane right now. I won't believe this until Lady Alice tells me herself, Sheriff. I know, but... Gosh, you... Huh? Gosh, come with the well, What is it, Clifford? Look, Scott, a palomino. Hey. And it isn't one of ours. No, it isn't, and it's been ridden hard. That's Proves it, Sky. That proves it. I'd recognize Lady Alice's Palomino anywhere. Hey, what's Penny doing to the songbird? Why, she's going to take off. Look out! Precious sakes! Taking off in the duck like that. Almost took the stable with her. Sky, someone was with Penny. I couldn't see the face, but the hair was no white. Lady Alice, Sheriff, you and your men stay in contact with me by radio. Check. Jim Clipper and I'll follow the songbird in the flying arrow. We'll use radar till daylight. Come on. 
We'll find out where Lady Alice is making Penny Flyer. Longbird calling the Flying Arrow. Longbird calling the Flying Arrow. Penny, on the radio. Here, I'll get it. Come in, Songbird. This is the Flying Arrow. Over. I'll take it, Penny. Hello, Sky. Hey, it's Lady Alice, Sky. This is Sky King, Lady Alice. What's wrong? You see that mine on Rocky Bluff? Well, Penny and I are going down there. Got any guns on that flying machine of yours that your six shooters? We have a 20-millimeter cannon in the nose. Good. Keep it covered. That's all. Hello. Lady Alice, come in, Songbird. What's wrong, Sky? Oh, they cut me out. Sky, that mine on Rocky Bluff hasn't been worked in years. Well, I'll be a two-toed lizard. Look, men are working down there. Looks like a beehive. Hey, Penny's landing on the flat cliff just below the bluff. Hey, they must be going the rest of the way by foot. Circle over again, will you, Cover? Something strange about that mining camp. Sky. Trent's plane is closing in on us. Funny he hasn't contacted us by radio. Hey, Sky, ain't he coming to bite too close? Ooh, Jim's right. What's the matter with him? Maybe the radio's out of commission. Looks like they're trying to give us some kind of a signal. Yeah, look, there's Trent waving his arms from the controls. Keep her steady, Clipper, till I can make out what he wants. Hey, Sky, Trent's man is opening the cabin door. He's got a machine gun. I'll take the controls, Clipper. Sky, we're hit.
You know, Peter Pan is made of specially selected fresh roasted peanuts that are just bursting with extra good flavor. They're ground up extra smooth and packed right away before any of that wonderful fresh roasted peanut flavor can escape. And then, Peter Pan's special vacuum sealed jar top locks that flavor in for sure. Oh, man. That's why Peter Pan's always so smooth and fresh. Doesn't get stale or stick to the roof of your mouth. That's why it's always got that really swell peanut flavor. Right down to the last tiniest smidgen, way down there on the bottom of the jar. Yeah, just you take one bite, and you'll know why Peter Pan's the favorite peanut butter of wide awake guys and gals all over the country. And don't you forget, gang, Peter Pan's a real good energy food, too. It's loaded with the extra pep, the extra energy that you need to be a real top notcher in games and cool world. Why not ask your mom to bring you some home tomorrow, huh? Then next time that you're kind of hungry, fix yourself the tastiest treat in the whole wide world. A sandwich made of Peter Pan, America's favorite peanut butter. Now back to Sky King in The Lady's Sheriff. Now, minutes later, Sky and his friends are attempting to scale Rocky Bluff under fire. Kenny and Lady Alice walk across the old mining camp to go to shaft, leading deep into the bluff itself. Oh, golly, I'm worried about Sky. The flying arrow was on fire. If I know Sky King, Penny, he'll find a way to land that there flying contraption. Right now, we've got important work to do. Hey, you mean the Trent is pulling a fraud? Oh, sure as shooting, Penny. I smelled a rat the minute I laid eyes on him. That's why I brought Trent's diamond samples with me. Check them against any diamond-bearing rocks we might find here in the mine. Diamonds are real? Why would Trent give them to you to hold? To fool the investors, Penny. Hey, not a bad deal. $60,000 exchanged for several hundred thousand dollars from selling stock that ain't worth a wooden nickel. Uh-huh. Sigh must be taking care of that polecat, Trent. Give us time to finish here. Hey, you mean we're going down there? Have to. It's the only shaft here not caved in. Come on, Penny. You hold the light. Yeah. Can't we take this rail car down? No. And the dirt looks loose, too. We don't want a heavy rail car causing a cave in. But shouldn't we help Sky? Oh, child, I've known Sky King a lot longer than you have, and I've never seen that day yet when he couldn't take care of himself. Let's keep moving down. More moves, Sky. We'll have them on the open bluff, and we'll be behind the rocks. No. No, I think they've caught on to our tactics. Stay here, Tipper, and signal Jim to pepper away from where he is. I'm going up around them. But Sky behind them is open clearing. They'll see you. Trent's placed blocks of wood up there, so it'll look from here like people are working on the bluff. I'll come behind one of those blocks. Okay, but be careful. I will. I'll start banging away at them, so they'll stay down while I go up. And wait for my signal before you and Jim get on. Oh, it was, guys! Here's a little payment for shooting down the flying arrow! Oh, gee, but this is spooky. With all that loose dirt overhead, it must be dangerous down here. Yeah, it is. That's one reason they quit mining here over 20 years ago. Hold that light steady, Penny. I've got to see this. Wow. Are those diamond rocks? 
Gee, just look at them. Yeah, there's diamonds in them, all right, but not diamonds like Trent was showing around for samples. These are low grade. Call them industrial diamonds. Well, you mean to say the mine is worth it? Yeah, it ain't worth much. Industrial diamonds are used for precision instruments, like in that there watch you're wearing. Oh. Not enough here to make it worthwhile to work the mine. Yeah, but where does Trent get the real diamonds he left with you? Most likely he got them from a big robbery in New Mexico about two years ago, and we'll prove that next, now that we know this mine's a fraud. Come on, Penny, let's settle out of this mine. Mm-hmm. Not so fast, Lady Alice. You're going out of here all right, but not the way you planned. Trent! Don't reach for those diamond studded six shooters, Lady Alice. I have the draw. Guy's on his way here. He'll fix you. Yes, Guy King is on the way here. Only we'll be ready for him. He won't fix anyone but himself. <laughs> That's Guy from the other side. He made it. Open up, Jim. Right. You show these rattlesnakes a thing or two. Okay, okay, I give up. I give up. Hold it, Jim, Clipper. Put your hands up down there. Okay, just don't shoot. Come on, Clipper, let's move in. Careful, Jim. I see only one man. I'm just waiting for those other pool caps to stick their heads up. All right, where's Trent? I don't know. He and Bush went back there someplace. Who is this guy? Well, whoever he is, he'd better tell us where Trent has gone and tell us quick. That's all I know. I fly the plane for Trent sometimes. Honest, mister, give me a break. Yeah, we'll give you a break, all right. Here, Clipper, some rope I took from the songbird. Tie him up good. Uh-huh. That's the idea. Well, that ought to hold you for a while. Good. Now let's go into Rocky Bluff to find Penny and Lady Alice before Trent does. If he hasn't found them already. Most of the company came in his bales right across the clearing for the mine shaft. Good. Let him come. What are you planning, you no good lizard? Easy, Lady Alice. Watch your blood pressure. We're not going to hurt him. Better not. Come on. I'm in this cove here. Get a load of the lady sheriff, Fred. She's arresting us. All right. Remember one word I need to get mowed down right for this tent. Only oh, two of them. Old man's missing. Probably left him at the top of the shaft. Take care of him later. Quiet. Think they're down here, Sky? Well, they must be careful of it, Ben. Can't get any lower. It's so funny. Shouldn't be far from the bottom of the shed. Not a sound or a light, honey. Wow. What was that, Sky? Come on. Let's go back and see. It sounded like it was right around this bed here. Golly. A slab of rock. Right across the shaft. Sky. Sky. We're trapped down here. Put 
carnation with all that racket down there. Put your hands I... up, old man. What? Clint. I'll take that gun. Pretty. Lady Alice. What happened? They caught us down in the shaft, Jim. And they've trapped Sky and Clipper down there with a big slab of rock. Why, that dirty vermicelli. You'll just stay where you are, old man. Don't worry, Jim. Someday we'll catch up with these crooks and we'll give them a real lesson in justice. Well, Clint, we've got the diamonds, and King's not going anyplace. What do we do with this kid, the old lady, and the old guy? Don't you call me an old lady, you string bean with ears. Why, you? You make it look like an accident, Butch. This old rail car here. If we released a brake, gave it a push down the shaft, <coughs> what would happen to it? Happen? Well, I'd be traveling a mile a minute before it hit that slab of rock in the shaft. Anyone can figure that. Yeah. Anyone can. Come on, folks. In that rail car, quick. Why, you... Don't you get a gun. <laughs> get in there, all of you. You'll pay for this sooner than you think, Prince. More likely we'll collect, Lady Alice. Collect lots more money from the ranchers to invest in Rocky Bluff. Here, Butch. Call the diamonds. And keep them covered while I give this car just to push it. Let's drop those. No, the diamonds are too close. They're going too fast to jump. But when... We hit that rock, we'll push it right through on top of Sky's Clippers. Hurry. Lady Alice, get behind me. At least we'll have something to catch. Yes, we'll hit that slab of rock going over 50 miles an hour. We'll all be killed. And now back to Sky King and the Lady Sheriff. Jim, Penny, and Lady Alice, the fabulous Lady Sheriff of the Old West, are forced into a rail car on Rocky Bluff and are sent hurtling down a diamond mine shaft by Bruce Trent, a man working a diamond fraud on the ranches of Flint Ridge County. Meantime, at the bottom of the tunnel, Sky and Clipper are trapped behind a huge slab of rock that Trent has used to block the shaft. Sky, what's that? Hey, sounds like a rail car coming down those old tracks of her. Guy, that's Penny. She's in that rail car. Jim and Lady Alice are probably with her. They'll be killed. And the rope will be pushed back to crush us. Get back, get back. Jump and junipers, they're almost here. Step her quick. Use your gun. Shoot over this rock into that soft dirt on the ceiling of the shaft. Sky, another 30 Do seconds. Do as I say, Clipper. We might knock down that part of the ceiling. That way the car will have a cushion before it hits the rock. Start shooting. <laughs> What happened? I think it worked, Clipper. I moved the rock some. I think we can slip by now. There. But where are these guys? Uh, oh, you're all right, Jim. Here's Lady Alice and Penny. I knew you'd come through, guys, somehow. Oh, I've never been so thankful for dirt in all my life. <laughs> Me too. I'd never wash it off. How did you do it, Scott? We shot at the soft dirt and ceiling. It's fell. Them bombers are getting away, Sky. And the diamonds they got were taken in a robbery in New Mexico two years ago. I'm sure of it. That's all I wanted to hear, Lady Alice. Come on, Clipper. Let's get after him. How are we going to stop them, Sky? With our six shooters? No, we'll stop them with a the songbird. They're starting their takeoff. 
You're taxiing right toward him. Hang on, Clipper. We're going to hit him. Not if I know Trent's courage. He'll turn away into the bluff. Look out, Sky. We're going to hit him. Uh... Ooh, they, they turned. Trent turned into the bluff. Oh, I thought he would, but it was a pretty close squeak. Look, Lady Alice, Jim, and Penny are over by Trent's plane. Oh. And Lady Alice has those diamond studded stick shooters out. She sure has, Clipper. Lady Alice never misses. That won't cause any more trouble. Hang on, we're landing. Well, Lady Alice, have your prisoners in tow? Yep, I got them, Skye, thanks to you. Eh, neat bit of nerve work I've seen there. Feel years older just watching it, which makes me near a hundred. Oh, Skye, you came so close to Trent's plane that I closed my eyes. Mine ain't open yet. Well, Trent and Butch better keep their eyes open. And see all the free world they can, while they can. Because for the next 30 years, all they're going to see is four prison walls. So once again, Sky King wins out in his constant fight for justice. Written by Dick Stenger, Sidney Renthal, and Fran Van Hardesfeld. Features Earl Nightingale. Earl on Jack Bibbon. Mike Wallace speaking. Listen Tuesday to Sky King. And the Mark of El Diablo. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Mike Wallace and Earl Nightingale, two broadcasters better known for things other than that episode of Sky King, The Lady Sheriff, from the spring of 1951, and from The Big Broadcast, a show that's going to be playing some more kids' programming from old-time radio over the next few months, partly in response to the many requests we've received from our listeners. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Errold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. It may not seem so to us today, but 70 years ago, when it came to race matters particularly the treatment of Native Americans, the attitude of gun smoke was positively enlightened. There's much in these programs that we can object to today, but compared to other radio and TV westerns of the time, gun smoke represented a real step forward, or even several steps. Tonight's episode is a good example. Matt Dillon is careful to point out that a terrorist attack was the work of only a few renegade tribesmen. It's a story called Alarm at Pleasant Valley, and it comes from September 10th, 1955, CBS and the series Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers. 
And that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gun Smoke, starring William Conrad. Transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. that for, Chester? Oh, I don't know. I just want to make a noise, I guess. It's so blame quiet out here on the prairie. Now, you've been mighty quiet yourself. I guess I run plumb out of conversation back a couple hours ago. It, it ain't I'm unsociable, Mr. Yeah, Dillon. I know, Chester. It's been a long ride. Yeah, but we'll be in Dodge by dark. Uh, yes, sir. Just in time to go to bed. <laughs> you didn't have anything better to do, did you? I guess not. Game of checkers with Doc, maybe. Oh, that man plays the dog Gondas craziest game of checkers. Hey, Chester. Mm. Over there. What? Well, that smoke, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Must be a grass fire, huh? Well, was smoke got black? Well, what is it then? Isn't there a ranch over in that direction? Well, no, yes, sir, there is. Not far, neither. Fellow's name Claiborne, as I remember. Come here from Indiana about four years ago, him and his wife did. Awful nice fella. Come on, Chester. Planted corn the first year, but it didn't turn out very well. Come on, Chester, we better take a look. left, is there? What do you suppose could have happened? Yeah, there's one thing for sure. It wasn't an accident. Hmm? Look at the tracks. Horses. They're all milling around. Yeah, sure, a lot of them. What I don't understand is where is Mr. Claiborne? Here's his house not hardly burnt to the ground yet. Take a look over there, Chester. Mr. Dillon. Come on. Should have stayed in Indiana. And his wife, too. And I didn't even know they had a little one, Mr. Dillon. Looks like they was trying for cover in that little creek bed there. Well, we can only do one thing for him now. Maybe there's a shovel left back there. 
Mr. Dillon, who could have did a thing like that? That's plain enough, isn't it? Yes, but I didn't hear no Indian trouble right now. I didn't either. Mr. Jones? Yeah. If them Indians were just here not very long ago, they couldn't have gone far. That's right, Chester, they couldn't. All right, come on, let's get to that show. Mr. Claiborne. Look out there, Mr. Dillon. What? Planted corn again, and it's doing real well, too. Yeah. Now, wait a minute, Chester. Listen. Horses. A lot of them. Yeah. You think it could be them Indians coming back? Well, it could be. Get the rifles, and we'll try a run for the creek bed. Oh, too late, Mr. Dillon. They're coming over the rise. Mr. Dillon, it ain't Indians, it's the Bluecoats. Yeah. A patrol, a whole company of them. Oh, my, ain't they a welcome sight? Yeah, come on, let's go meet them. Uh, we were riding in from Pawnee, and we saw the smoke, Lieutenant. We were a little too late. Uh, so I see. Where are Over they? Over there. All three of them. We're pretty close on their trail now. Maybe we can get them before they find another ranch. Well, from the prints, I figured them for Kiowa. But I didn't know there was any trouble. There isn't. The tribe, these are just renegades. Not more than eight or ten of them. Uh, Got all fired up and jumped the agency. Fired up with cheap whiskey. Well, maybe... But we can't be more than about half an hour behind them now. With luck, we'll get them before nightfall. I sure hope so. Marshal, we'll take over here for you. The horses need a few minutes rest. Then we'll go on. All right, Lieutenant. We'll head on in the dodge. And keep your eyes open, Marshal, on the way. Yeah. Yeah, we will. <laughs> Cussed crying shame. Them Indians can be as peaceful as anything, and then some ornery white man comes along and sells them some of that red eye, and they just go hog crazy. Chester, an Indian's no different from anybody else with too much to drink. Now the problem's deeper than that. What do you mean? Well, the Indians have lost a lot. They're a conquered people. That doesn't sit well with any man, Chester. There are times when it makes him mad. Mm. Yes, sir, that's so. I guess maybe you can't blame him entirely. Uh, not entirely. Mm, well, see now, that's a pretty little valley. Hey, look, there's somebody down there. Yeah, it looks like settlers. They do indeed with that Comstock wagon. <laughs> they build them a sod hut, too. Well, looks like we got neighbors we didn't know we had, Mr. Dillon. Or maybe we're losing them before we get to know them. Hmm? They seem to be packing the wagon. Maybe they heard about the Indians. Yeah, that's likely. Now, come on, we'll ride down and say hello.
Afternoon. Howdy. I'm Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal out of Dodge. Ah, uh, this is Chester Proudfoot. I'm Sam Fraser. This is my ma. Sam. This is my wife, Alice. Hello. How do you do? This is Tad, my kid brother. Pleased to meet you. Hello. We're headed for Dodge ourselves. Uh, looks like you got settled here. Well, we ain't staying, Marshal. We're going on west. Chasing rainbows, Marshal. Farm folks like us. Now, Ma. Don't you now, Ma, me, Sam Fraser. If your pa was still alive, well, he, he wouldn't ain't. believe... And it's up to me to do the deciding now. If you'll excuse me, Marshal, I'll get back to loading up. Uh, Justin, I can give you a hand. No, thanks. Tad and me will manage. Uh... That's a real nice odd hut, Miss Fraser. It's kind of too bad to go off and leave it. My husband built it. Not him. Now, Ma, Sam, help. Huh. Marshal, what do you think of a son that goes against his father's wishes and him not hardly cold in his grave? Ma, please. Three days now, Marshal. He's buried right over there under that cottonwood. I'm sorry, ma'am. He hadn't been here more than a week. Come all the way from Ohio. Looking for a spot of good ground to till. Looking for a home, Marshal. And he found it here. It sure is a pretty little place. Hmm. Samuel called it Pleasant Valley. Said he'd be grateful to settle here and spend his days. Only the Lord didn't leave him any days. Denied him, like Moses, come to the promised land. It would make a nice homestead for you folks. It would. But some folks has ideas. Oh, my layoff. Mr. Fraser. What? Look, uh, I know it's none of my business, but uh, is there some reason why you want to give up this land and go on? Reason enough. It's because of me, Marshal. Now, Alice, you ain't to blame. Yes, I am. It's because Sam is worried about me, Marshal. No Indians would scare him off if it was just these folks, but it's me he's scared for. Me and... And the one coming. And what better reason? You think I want my wife and my child living in danger of murdering savages? Oh, Mr. Fraser, this is just a bunch of renegades. The cavalry will get them soon and the danger will be over. And who's to say what they'll do before the cavalry gets them? No, Marshal, my family's going to grow up in a safe place. My ma born me in the middle of the Ohio woods. Thick with Indians as fleas on a hound. We was made us sterner stuff in them days. Maybe. But my wife ain't going to live like that. Now, come on, Tad. Hand that up. We're losing time. Um, you're going on west? Aye, to California, he says. Might even look for gold instead of farming, he says. Oh, my. I, I reckon most of that gold out there is already clean. Twenty years or more. Uh, of course, you might have luck. We can always that, find but... a piece of land. Yeah, maybe you can, but nothing better than this. Nothing half as good. This dirt's richer than molasses in the cook pot. If it was me, well, I... Well, it ain't. Now, hoist. If I was just a few years old... I said old, hoist. I... You see how it is, Marshal. Yes, and... Uh, maybe he's right. Uh, California might work out fine. Only it's a long way, and with Miss Fraser expecting, uh, it's going to be... Kind of a hard trip. I know all that, Marshal. We'll stay in Dodge till the baby's born. It won't be long now, and then we'll go on. I just want to say one thing, Mr. Fraser, as a lawman in this territory. We have some troubles now and then, sure, but it's not as bad as you think. 
And in a few years, it'll be as safe here as it is in Ohio right now, or California. And this is going to be a prosperous country. My mind's made up, Marshal. Well, all right. We better help you get loaded then, see you safe into Dodge. The worst place to be right now is out on the open prairie. Good. That should ride easy. That's the last. All right, then. We're all ready. Might as well get started. It's getting late. You got them all hitched, Tad? They're ready. Where's Ma? She's over by the cottonwood. Oh. Crying, I suppose, to shame me. Sam. Well... Tears don't do no good. She ain't crying. She's just standing, staring. I tried to get her to come away, but she wouldn't. Marshal, maybe if you were to talk to her. You know, a stranger. All right. Well, sure, ma'am. Miss Fraser. He's there, Marshal. Right there. We fixed up a cross. Yes, ma'am. Maybe if you was to pass by this way again, you just take a look. See the marker still standing? Well, sure I will, ma'am. Twenty-five years, Marshal. And all I ever asked was to lie there beside him. It's a lonely place. Mm-hmm. But it's no lonelier than any other, Miss Fraser. Why, in the springtime, this whole meadow is covered with a blanket of sunflowers. Pretty as you ever saw. Thank you, Marshal. I can go now. Ma, Ma, I'm sorry. No need, boy. We all do what we have to do. You're no different. Just help me up. Oh, here, Ma. All right. Now let's get this girl into town. Her time's almost come. Okay, Ma. Hey! All right, come on, Chester. Yes, sir. I want you to ride the point. Keep a good watch ahead and to the north, huh? All right, sir. I'll cut up to the top of that hill and take a look, and then I'll ride south flank, cover that side and behind. Well, Mr. Dillon, it sure does seem a shame. Wait a minute, Chester. Oh, my gracious, coming over the hill. Yeah. Them ain't blue coats. No, they're not, Chester.
Go back. What? Look up there. Indians. Get back to the hut. Use your rifle, Chester. It's too far to hit them. It'll let them know they got a fight. Yes, sir. Now they've turned off. I thought they would. All right, let's get back to the Frasers. Come on. Hurry it up. Let's get those women into the hut. We're trying, Marshal, but Alice got shook up some with us going so fast. Well, we'll carry her. Come on. Be all right, Marshal. Sure you will, ma'am. Hang on now. There we go. Over here. Right here, Marshal. Put her down gently. Yes, ma'am. Alice. Oh, Sam, don't you worry. I'll be all right. You go on. Do what needs to be done. I'll be all right. But, Alice... Go on, boy. Come on, Sam. You got a rifle, Sam? Yeah, yeah, sharps in the wagon. Well, that'll give us three. I ain't got one, Marshal, but I can load for you. All right, son. There'll be plenty to do. They're still up there, Mr. Dillon. Having a powwow, looks like. You figure they'll rush us, Marshal? No. They know we got rifles. There are only eight or nine of them, and the ground's too open. They'll either go on and leave us alone, or they'll wait till the sun goes down and come in in the dusk. There's nothing to do but wait. Well, we can use the time to unload part of the wagon. And just the things they'll need in there, though. And we'll drive it off and cut the horses loose. We don't want them milling around in case of a fight. Sam! What, Ma? Get water from the creek! Make a fire, quick. Ma! Don't stand there. You heard me. Get moving. Yes, sir. Relax, Fraser. She's going to be all right. Sure, sure. Out here in nowhere with them up there. This is just what I was afraid of. Well, plenty have been born this way. Now, you might have been yourself, you know. I know, but... Tad, where are you going? Down to the creek. Mom wants more water. Uh, you better go with him, Chester. Yes, sir. Oh, I should have gone two days ago. I wanted her to have the best. Nothing but the best. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. That's, that's why I talked about hunting gold in California. You know something, Sam... A man can waste a lifetime looking for gold when it's right in front of his eyes. Where? Now you're looking at it. There's wealth here for a man, too. I know it, Martha. Tad! Yeah, come on. Tad! He's all right, Mr. Dillon. Yes, sir, Nick. One of them snuck up close, but I chased him off. Oh, Tad. I'm all right, Sam. J- just crease my arm. Well, Bleeding. We'll fix it when we get him back to the hut. There we go. Is it tight enough, son? Oh, sure, sure, Marshal. It's okay. How's Alice? I don't know. Ma chased me away. 
I'm worried, Marshal. And I'm more worried about those Indians. It's going to be dark soon. Mr. Dillon, that troll ought to be around here somewhere. Yeah, I know. I was hoping they'd show up. Well, they can't be far. They was on the trail. Maybe if I was to ride out... Now, there's a better way, Chester. Signal them. How? Have a sign they've been looking for and hoping not to see. Smoke. You mean set the grass afire? No, that'd smoke us out, too. No, the wagon. Oh, but Marshal... Yeah, I know, Fraser. It's like burning your bridges behind you, but it's the only thing we've got. All right. All right, we'll burn it. Sure sent up a lot of smoke while it lasted. You reckon the cavalry saw it, Mr. Dillon? That's hard to say, Chester. Well, if they did, I hope they're hurrying. The sun's most gone, all but the tops of the hills. This valley's getting mighty shadowy. Yeah, we better sit in a circle. Each one watch his side. Marshal! Out there, was that? What? No, just one of the horses, son, but you keep looking. Marshal! Marshal, listen! Look! Up there, it's the blue coats. They're here. Oh, ain't that a welcome sight? They're charging the Indians, running them off. Marshal, we're going to be all right. Yeah, Fraser. They'll get them now. Maybe if we... Sam, get in here. Alice. Well, what are you staring at? Body'd think you'd never seen a strapping, healthy baby boy before. Alice... I'm all right, darling. We're both all right. I told you you didn't need to worry about us. All right, now, you men folk, get on out of here. Go on, skedaddle. Uh, yes, ma'am. You too, Sam Fraser. Well, I'll be quick. Well, Sam, uh, Chester and I'll be getting on in the Dodge. We, we'll send a wagon out for you. What? I reckon we won't be needing the wagon, Marshal. Sam, you mean we're staying? Well, we buried one here. And we born one here. And we shed Fraser blood in this dirt. And it is good dirt, Marshal. And it is a pleasant place. Yes, it is. You'll be welcome here any time. Both of you. Thank you, Mr. Fraser. <laughs> Welcome to Kansas. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Special music for Gunsmoke was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Bill James and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were Vic Perrin, Helen Cleave, Eleanor Tannen, Sam Edwards, and John Daner. Harley Bear is Chester.
The Gunsmoke episode, called Alarm at Pleasant Valley, from the summer of 1955, and from the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz, Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. You can reach us by email at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. Our website is thebigbroadcast.org. You'll find some engaging extras on our Facebook page, The Big Broadcast. And remember, we're now on Instagram, Big Broadcast WAMU. Most of our listeners won't remember a time when you couldn't just pick up a phone and dial someone in another city, even one in a remote little town, as we can today. But direct long-distance dialing wasn't even possible until the early 1950s, and then it was only spotty. It didn't become widespread until the 60s. You'll hear how cumbersome the process was to make a long-distance call in a story that was broadcast over NBC on November 24, 1949, and the series Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide detail. A vicious killer has taken the life of a 62-year-old woman. Suspicion points in only one direction. The murderer was heartless. Cold-blooded. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step-by-step step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment... Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Saturday, November 5th. It was foggy in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. It was 3.35 p.m. when I got to room 42. Homicide. This is Friday in Homicide. I'd like to place a call to Mr. Frank Renard in Murphy, Idaho, the number 761. Frank Renard, Murphy, Idaho, 761. Yeah, that's right. The call's been cleared with the business office. All right. Uh, Do you want me to call you back, Sergeant? No, I'll hang on. Okay, I'll place it for you. Long distance, Mr. Frank Renard, Murphy, Idaho, Murphy, 761. Thank you. You hang up. Can I get you? Your number, please. Charge the call to Madison, 7961. Thank you. The time in charge is when the call's completed, operator. Radar operator? You ready to put a man out there? Yes, Murphy, Idaho, rooting and person rate. Okay. Tuesday, NAMPA. Hi. Operator, the number is 
Sergeant Friday, Los Angeles Police Department. I've got an urgent message for you. For me? Well, what's the matter? Well, your wife, Dolores, asked me to call you. Something's happened to your mother. What do you mean? What's happened? Well, I better let your wife tell you. She wants you back in Los Angeles right away. Look, what's this all about? I can't leave my job now. You better come. Your mother's been murdered. Talk to the skipper, Joe. He's on his way in. That's good. Did you call my husband? Did you? He's flying down from Idaho tonight. Be here in the morning. You tell him about me? The trouble I'm in? I told him his mother was murdered. That's all I told him, Mrs. Renard. What am I going to say to Frank? He always sided in with his mother. He'll never believe me. What can I tell him? Jury can give you more trouble than your husband can. What you going to tell them? Are you stupid or something? How many times do I have to say it? I didn't kill her. I didn't kill her. It's a small room, Ms. Renard. We can hear you. Sit down, please. I won't sit down. You're not pinning this on me because I didn't do it. Anybody could have killed the old hag, but I didn't. Will you sit down, please? I don't have to take this. I'm no tramp. Keeping me in here asking me questions. I told you all I know. Look, you're in a bad spot. I hope you realize that. I didn't kill her. Ms. Renard, how long have you and your mother-in-law been living together in the house on Chavez Road? Since Frank took the job up in Idaho. About six months. He said it'd be better for me while he was away living with her. Your neighbors told us you didn't get along very well with your mother-in-law. That's right, I didn't. She hated me, I hated her. You used to fight with her, is that right? You hit her. Only a couple of times. She called me dirty names. I hit her. She pulled me by the hair. I hated her like everything. I didn't kill her. Once more, Ms. Renard, would you mind telling us how you spent your time since early this morning, where you went, what you did, everything? I told you already everything. Will you tell us again, please? I got up about quarter to nine. I had a cup of coffee and then I got dressed. The old lady was on the back porch doing the washing. What did your mother-in-law do for a living? I told you. She took in washing. After I got dressed, I left the house. About ten minutes after nine, I went downtown to the dentist. He filled a tooth for me. This one here, you can ask him. What time did you leave the dentist's office? About quarter after ten. Maybe twenty after. You can ask him. What'd you do after that? I walked around window shopping. Did you buy anything? Talk to anybody? I told you no. What time did you get home? Half past twelve. I went in the bedroom. The old lady was on the floor. Blood all over. I felt her heart. It wasn't beating. 
Is that when you got the blood on your dress? Yeah. Now, that's all I'm going to say. Three times I told you the same story already. And you still can't account for your time between 10.20 this morning and the time you found the body and called the police at 12.30. I told you. I left the dentist. I went window shopping. Then I walked home. And during that time, you didn't talk to anyone and no one saw you. Lots of people saw me. People on the street downtown. I'm no tramp. I don't talk to everybody. None of your neighbors saw you come home, Miss Renard? Of course they didn't see me. I cut across the back lot up from San Jose Avenue. I came in the back way. The lady who lives next door to you. She says she was in the backyard about noontime. She stayed there till after one o'clock. She didn't see you come in the back way. Then she's a liar. She's a dirty liar. You and your husband took out an insurance policy on your mother-in-law last year. Is that right, Ms. Renard? Sure it is. What of it? Five thousand dollars? Yeah, so what? You know a man by the name of George Martino? No. You better tell the truth, Ms. Renard. All right, so I do. He's a friend of mine. You've been running around with him since your husband's been away. None of your business. I do what I want. Your mother-in-law found out about Martino. That's what you fought about most of the time. Oh, she was crazy. He's a friend of mine, that's all. Are you telling the truth, Ms. Renard? Martino's a boyfriend of mine. I told you, that's all. Your mother-in-law found out you were running around with him. She warned you if you didn't shake Martino, she'd write your husband. You said you'd kill her if she did. That's a lie. That's what your mother-in-law told one of the neighbor ladies. And I said it just to scare her. One night I was drinking. We had a fight. She was yapping at me all night. I said it just to scare her. But she wrote the letter anyway. And that's what she said. But I didn't kill her. You had the time, the motive, and the opportunity. It wasn't me. I didn't kill her. Interrogation room, Friday. This is Brennan, Joe. Yeah, Bill. Where are you? Santa Monica. Picked up George Martino. <laughs> Ben and I drove Mrs. Renard to Lincoln Heights Jail, fifth floor, and had her booked on suspicion of 187 PC. When we checked back in at the office, Brennan and Wiseman, the other two men on the case with Ben and I, were questioning George Martino in the interrogation room. Ben and I stood by. Martino admitted only two things. He had been running around with Mrs. Renard since her husband left town, and he had heard Mrs. Renard express a desire to do away with her mother-in-law. After the questioning of Martino, Sergeant Brennan, Ben and I met with Chief Ed Backstrand. It was 5.15 p.m. You got everything but the murder weapon, huh? That and Mrs. Renard's confession. She ought to come through, huh, Joe? I don't know. She's scared, but she's still got a smart mouth. What about Martino, Brennan? You think he had a hand in it? I don't think so. We spent most of the afternoon talking to him. He hasn't got the guts. We took a statement. And does he have an alibi? Solid. What was the cause of death? Strangulation, multiple fractures of the skull. All the motives are with Mrs. Renard, Chief. Pretty clear-cut job. No evidence of robbery or burglary, I guess. A couple of the dresser drawers in her bedroom were emptied on the floor and clothes tossed all around. Pretty obvious plan to make it look like burglary. Maybe. We found three $1 bills in plain sight. They were on the floor near the body. If a burglar went through this stuff, he wouldn't have missed that money. Yeah, it shouldn't be too much trouble tying it up. Shouldn't be, Skipper. Uh, Friday and Romero, you follow the case through. Oh, just a minute. Hello, Backstrand. Yeah? What? All right, I'll send him over. Lee Jones. Just finished checking the evidence at the crime lab. Yeah? He thinks Mrs. Renard's innocent. (laughs) 
There they are, fellas. Facts don't lie. But she had every reason in the world to kill the old lady. In my book, she couldn't have killed her. All right, let's have it, Lee. How does the evidence add up? That's just it, Joe. It doesn't. Take a look. Right. The dress Mrs. Renard was wearing when she found the body. That's it. Blood smears near the hem. Two smears, that's all. Now, if she murdered her mother-in-law, there should be more blood on this dress. It shouldn't be smeared. How do you mean? First of all, the manner in which the old lady was killed. Head was battered in. Must have bled profusely. No question about that. All right, go ahead. Whoever murdered the old lady must have stains all over their clothes. Here's the important part. Because of the nature of the wound, it would have stained in drops, not smears. Well, how can you tell the difference? Maybe these are drop stains on her desk. They're not. I checked them with the microscope. Only the higher ribs of the cloth are stained. The smears, nothing else. But a drop forms its own definite drop pattern and permeates the cloth, soaks in. Uh-huh. No signs of that on her dress. Not a one. Now, here's the silk scarf the old lady was strangled with. Yeah? Here's what I found in the knot tied in the scarf. A blonde hair, wavy. Old lady had dark hair. So does Miss Renard. So does her boyfriend. That's what I mean. This blonde hair is one of two things that didn't belong at that murder seat. What else you got? This hair. What is it, Lee? Small piece of plastic. A gun butt, I'd say. See here? Uh-huh. Crisscross surface and a little smooth area here. Yeah. The killer could have hit the old lady with the butt of a gun. And a piece of the stock could have chipped off like this, huh? Miss Renard doesn't own a gun. Neither did her mother know. Well, where does that leave us? I don't know, Joe. There's the stuff. You can't disregard it. Maybe you can explain it. Yeah. How? Well, first prove this dress isn't the one Mrs. Renard was wearing this morning. Then find the dress she did wear. And we know she wore this when the dentist identified it, and so did two of the neighbors. That's what I mean. The dress is too clean, doesn't belong. Yeah. And this blonde hair, this piece of gun butt, they don't belong either. Well, then you think she's innocent. You're looking at the evidence. What do you think? 6 p.m. Saturday, November 5th. Ben and I went back to the office and met with Brennan, Wiseman, and Ed Backstrand. The open and shut case against Mrs. Renard was up in the air, but we still weren't sure that she was innocent of the murder of her mother-in-law. Ben and I drove to the Lincoln Heights jail and interviewed the suspect again. She agreed to submit to a lie detector test. We drove back to the office, contacted Sergeant Berger, the department's polygraph man, and set up a special test for the following day. The next morning, we met with Berger and formulated a list of key questions, and then we picked up Mrs. Renard and brought her to the third floor of the old city jail building, the polygraph room. At 10.33 a.m., the test got underway. As usual, Sergeant Berger conducted the interview alone. Backstrand, Ben, and I waited outside. Well, um, how about Mrs. Renard's husband? Getting down yet? He's due in around noon, Skipper. Um, uh, got a smoke? Yeah. Here you are, Ed. Yeah, thanks. What time is it now? 11.25. Here's Berger now. Uh, that's it, Ed. Uh, what'd you get? I can study the chart a little more. The results are pretty well defined, though. How's it look? No reaction to the key questions. What's your opinion? I don't think she did it. You are listening to Dragnet, authentic stories of your police force in action. November 7th. Mrs. Renard was released from custody. We questioned her husband, Frank Renard, briefly. He could tell us nothing more than we already knew. Brennan and Wiseman were called back on the case, and together the four of us started over again from the beginning. We had a dead body, two pieces of physical evidence to work with, no idea how to fit them together, and no suspects. We went back to the Chavez Road neighborhood where the murdered woman lived and started pushing doorbells. 
We canvassed the neighborhood for three days, and we uncovered one slim lead. He was selling magazines, officer. Went door to door, right up the street here. Young fellow. Could you describe the man for us, please? Nothing to talk about. Pasty face, pimply complexion, blonde hair. 5.30 p.m. Wednesday, November the 9th. Ben and I met with Brennan and Wiseman and Ed Backstrand's office to compare notes. Together, we had more than a dozen reports of the magazine salesman's presence in the neighborhood just prior to the murder of Mrs. Renard's mother-in-law. The various descriptions of the man which we obtained from the people in the neighborhood tallied closely. About six feet, 170 pounds, pimply complexion, blonde hair, fast talker. About 25 years old. As far as we know, Skipper, he was the only stranger in the neighborhood last Saturday morning. Only one that people remember, anyway. How close did you trace him to the Renard house? You got your list there, Brennan? Yeah. There you are. Thanks. Let's see. Well, he picked up his tracks down on Floresta Street, sold a couple of descriptions there, then he headed up Landers Avenue onto Chavez Road. Yeah. The Renards live at 2280 Chavez Road. That salesman talked to the woman at 2274 Chavez. That's three doors away from the Renards. Uh, when was he seen there? Oh, let me see. Where is that, Brennan? Oh, on the 15-7 sheet, Joe. Didn't have enough room on the report. Oh, yeah. Here it is. Mrs. John Rico, 2274 Chavez. The guy was there about 11.45 Saturday morning. Well, that puts him in the running. First time he ever showed in that neighborhood? First time, Skipper. Fresh kid, not a very good salesman. Here's the name of the company he's working for, the Harrison News Distributors. You check with them? Well, they're closed for the night. We'll call them the first thing tomorrow. Good. Here's something else for you. I had a call from Frank Renard this afternoon. What did he have to say? Seems in the excitement just after the murder, Mrs. Renard overlooked a couple of things. What's that? Well, they're missing a yellow table model radio. radio. In the bedroom where the old lady was killed. Yeah, well, that ties in with a robbery motive, huh? And yeah, they're missing a ring, too. Belonged to Mrs. Renard. Topaz ring. It's supposed to be worth a little money. But she didn't notice it was gone until today. That's right. You got the serial number on the radio? Yeah, right here. Yeah, let's see. Yeah, Brennan, here we are. It's an Emerson model 511 180,000, 277609. A lot of small radios in town. There's only one with that serial number on it. Track it down. <laughs> A complete description of the topaz ring and the serial numbers and description of the yellow table model radio were sent to the pawn shop detail. The information was then placed on the stolen property list and relayed to every pawn shop operator in the city. The next morning, Ben and I interviewed the manager of the Harrison News Distributing Company. There, the suspect had given his name as Sam Bricker. We checked out his home address. Turned out to be a gas station in North Hollywood. We took the suspect's job application blank with a specimen of his handwriting and then we drove back to the office. Sam Bricker... We were unable to get a make on the name from the record bureau. We checked the cards and every known criminal who was cataloged in the oddity file as having a pimply complexion. None of them matched. That night, we got out an APB and a radiogram. The suspect's trail led from one salesman's job to the next. On his last job, he gave his name as Albert Berry. His address is 1430 Palo Alto Drive. It was in the Echo Lake District. Ben and I drove out to check it. 1428. 1430. There it is, Joe. Yeah. At least it's not a gas station, huh? Come on. Tiresome, huh? Yeah, I could stand a change. Yes, what is it? We're looking for an Albert Barry, ma'am. Does he live here? Mr. Barry, I'm sorry. He and his wife moved four days ago. We identified ourselves as police officers and had the landlady, a Mrs. Catherine Hoffman, show us the apartment which Barry and his wife had occupied. It was still vacant. In one of the closets in the apartment, we found a cheap overnight bag. The lock on it was broken and one of the seams had ripped. 
I forgot about that old bag, and Mr. Barry told me I could throw it away. Take a look, I'm in. How long has Barry been married? Do you know, Mrs. Hoffman? No, I don't. But the way they acted, lovey-dovey all the time, I don't think they've been together long. Hey, Joe. Hmm? Look, some kind of an identification tag. Yeah, let me see. Get it up here. It's a tool disc, it looks like, doesn't it? Jameson Larrabee, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You're not after Mr. Barry, are you, officer? Yes, Yes. ma'am, we are. Did he leave a forwarding address? I wish he did. I'm holding three letters for Mrs. Barry in my apartment right now. May we see them, please? Certainly. Would you step this way, please? My apartment's just across the hall. Yes, ma'am. Would you like a bottle of beer or something? No, ma'am, thanks. Let's see. I thought I put... Yes, here they are. Three of them, Sergeant. From her folks, I think. Mrs. Barry's from Fresno. Oh, that's good. I want to copy down this return address, ma'am. Uh, yeah, I'll go ahead. Okay. That's C.K. Ulrich, U-L-R-I-C-K. Mm. 525 North Lamona, Fresno. Yeah, I got it. Where you are, Miss Hoffman. By the way, did the Barry say they'd call for their mail? Mrs. Barry did. That's why I'm holding on to it. All right. Just one more question. Do you remember if Mr. and Mrs. Barry had a radio? Yes, they did. A small one. Do you remember what brand it was? No, I don't. It had a yellow case. That's all I remember. Before we left, we called Ed Backstrand, and he had an immediate stakeout placed at the apartment house in case the Berries returned to pick up their mail. Ben and I went back to the office and placed a call to the Pittsburgh Police Department. We gave them the description and the number of the tool disc which we'd found in Berry's old suitcase. They said they'd check with the Jameson Larrabee Company in the morning, and then they'd call us back. That night, Ben and I drove to Fresno and checked in at the police station up there. Two officers were assigned to stake out the Ulrich home. We interviewed Mr. Ulrich, who identified himself as Albert Barry's father-in-law. He told us his daughter had married the murder suspect eight months before, and he gave us pictures of Barry taken at the wedding. Ulrich told us that he'd catch a Santa Fe train out of Fresno the next morning. He wanted to be in Los Angeles to take his daughter home when Barry was apprehended. It was almost 2 a.m. when Ben and I left Fresno and started back for Los Angeles. We checked in at the office at 10 minutes past 8 the next morning. At 8.35, the call came through from the Pittsburgh Police Department. What did they say, Joe? It was a tool disc, all right. Jameson Larrabee Company, issued 18 months ago to one of their workers. They give a name? Albert Barry. 11 a.m. Monday, December the 5th. One month to the day since the 62-year-old woman had been beaten to death. The pictures of Barry and his wife, which had been taken at their wedding, were printed up in wholesale lots and distributed to all points. Mr. Ulrich, Barry's father-in-law, arrived in town and got himself a hotel room. We waited. There was no report from the stakeout at the apartment house. We checked back in at the office at five minutes to one. I'll get it. Homicide, Friday. This is Mr. Ulrich, Sergeant. I just got a call from my wife in Fresno. I thought you'd want to know. What's that? The wife got a letter from Norma. They're living in South Pasadena, an apartment. You got the address there? Yes, sir. That's what the wife called about. It's 134 Norway Terrace. When was the letter mailed, do you know? Wife said it was postmarked December 3rd, day before yesterday. Get your coat on, Ulrich. We'll be right over. Ben and I picked up Mr. Ulrich at his hotel and drove to the South Pasadena address. Barry and his wife had the apartment on the top floor. Neither of them were at home. The landlord let us in with a pass key. In the bedroom, we found a small yellow radio. We checked the serial numbers. They matched. It was the same radio stolen from the Renard house. In the bedroom closet, we found two suitcases. We checked through them. Nothing in this one, Joe. 
Here we are. Look at these. What are they, Sergeant? A pair of plastic gun butts. Let's see, Joe. One of them's been chipped, see? Sergeant. Hmm? Somebody coming up the stairs. All right, let's get in the living room. Be quiet. Norma. They want Albert. He killed a woman. It's all right, Norma. It'll be all right. Did you know your husband killed a woman, Miss Berry? He just told me last Saturday. We've been running away for a month now. Moving all the time. I wanted to know why. Oh, he told me. He said I was in it as much as he was. And I'm tired of running. <laughs> Why did he kill her? Did he tell you that? He, he said he broke in the house. He didn't know anyone was home. The old woman was in the bedroom. She started to cry out. He had a gun. He hit her with it. Where's your husband now? I don't know. Said he'd come home for dinner. About five. About the groceries. What time you got, Ben? Uh, half past three. Um, that ring you're wearing, Miss Berry. Did your husband give you that? Yes, why? What kind of a stone is that? Topaz. Bert gave it to me. Why? Nothing. We'll wait. Five o'clock came and went. Berry failed to show. 5.30. Ulrich started to get nervous. 6 o'clock. 6.30. No sign of Barry. I went to the window and kept an eye on the street below. At 6.45, a light green Nash sedan pulled to a stop in front of the apartment house. A man got out and went into the main floor entrance. Bert. I'll let him in. All right. How long have you had the new car? A couple of days. Bert got it credit. What do you want me to do now? Does he have a key to the apartment here? He lost it. Okay, when he rings, let him in. Just act natural. Ben? Yeah, yeah. You cover me. I'll get the cuffs on him. Right. Hi, Bert. Look out, Joe! All right, drop it, Barry. Okay, Ben. Yeah, he's fast with a gun. Nice looking, isn't he, Sergeant? You'd never think he'd kill anybody. Come on, let's take him in. I love him. I still love him. <laughs> but you're a cop, you wouldn't understand. That's right, I wouldn't understand. I'm a cop. The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On February 16, 1947, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 82, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. Albert Ralph Berry was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. His wife, Norma Berry, was found innocent of the charge that she harbored a criminal. She was returned home with her father. 
Barry was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard Dragnet, a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Acting Chief of Police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to Private Hubert W. Estes of the District of Columbia Metropolitan Police Department, who on the night of May 16, 1947, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. An episode of Dragnet from Thanksgiving Day in 1949 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd are our audio engineers. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. As we've noted, it's Women's History Month. And as it happens, this year we mark the bicentennial of one of the most important women in American history. As things stand now, sometime in this decade, we're going to be carrying her picture around with us everywhere we go because she's to appear on the face of the $20 bill. I'm talking about the woman they called Moses, an exemplar of courage and a symbol of freedom, Harriet Tubman. The exact date of her birth is unknown, as is the case with the histories of many people born into the institution of American slavery. But scholars are relatively certain it was in the early 1820s, and there's good evidence to suggest that it was in this month 200 years ago. In any case, as I say, her bicentennial is being marked now, and the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad State Park Visitors Center not far from Washington, on the eastern shore of Maryland, has been celebrating all this weekend. A few years ago, we honored Ms. Tubman with an episode of Destination Freedom, the landmark series by the writer and producer Richard Durham. And we're going to hear that program again now. We're grateful to our friend and colleague Sonia Williams of Howard University, who's done a great deal to bring Mr. Durham's work to a wider audience. By the way, recently, Sonia saw the release of the audio version of her biography, Word Warrior, Richard Durham, Radio and Freedom. We'll post the link to the publisher's site on our Facebook page. Sonia tells us that shortly after the conclusion of his radio series, Mr. Durham sought to write a stage play about Harriet Tubman, but it never came about. With a great performance from Westland Tilden as Harriet and the voice of announcer Hugh Downs, here... From July 4th, 1948, Chicago station WMAQ and NBC is the story called Railway to Freedom from Destination Freedom. I lived in the shadows, out of sight of the light of liberty. And I heard their voices call out to me in the dark. They were the voices of flames. They were the voices of my people. When I heard them, the earth moved under me. Rockets burst in my head. They were the voices of God. I was moving. Oh, 
down, Moses, way down in Egypt land, tell all Pharaoh to let my people go. Destination Freedom. The Chicago Defender and Station WMAQ bring you Destination Freedom, a special radio series dramatizing the great democratic traditions of the Negro people, interwoven in the pageant of history and a part of America's own Destination Freedom. Today, Destination Freedom dramatizes the story of one of the most remarkable women in world history. It is the story of Harriet Tubman, an American Moses, the liberator of 300 slaves, the fearless pilot of the pre-Civil War Underground Railway. Today, we tell of the early life of Harriet Tubman, the chapter entitled, Railway to Freedom. Hello. The voices were still that day on a plantation in Maryland where I grew wild like a weed, one of eleven children, one of a dozen slaves. The voices were still, or I was asleep. But I woke up one day when I heard a slave sing a song. We were husking corn. I knew the song, but there was something in the way he sang it. I stopped husking corn and listened. looked up at him and said, Saul? Huh? What were you singing? Oh, just a little old song. What does it mean, Saul? Are you nigh as old as I am? Old enough to know? Know what? To know the ways of the Underground Railroad, Harriet. To know there's a train waiting tonight. And how to tell those who want to come aboard to come aboard. How do you know all of that? The Talbot woman says so. She keeps track of the train. And you say you're going to cross over and... Look, see the way the old master's looking? He's on to it. Well, I'm going to my cabin. Got to get my things. I kept my eyes open, wide. Saul walked to his cabin. The master followed him. I followed them both. And as I came to the cabin, I heard angry voices. Oh. I stood in the doorway oh. and watched. Run oh. away, will you? No. I'll teach you. Let go. You're choking me. Let me go. I'll kill you. That's what. I'll kill you. I know about your plot. I've watched you. Let me go. Saul broke away and ran out past me. The master came after him with an iron bar in his hand. And I... I stepped in the way. I blocked the door. Get out of my way, girl. Move or I'll crack your devilish head. I was afraid, but I wouldn't move. I saw him lift the iron bar, and then his hand struck down. The earth moved, and rockets burst in my head. It was dark all around me. I seemed to be lying in a dark river, dreaming. Dreaming that I heard my mother saying, Harriet, you're hurt. Lie back, child. Lie back. 
I dreamed I heard the master come in and say... She should be whipped and branded. She tried to block my way. Why can't she be peaceful like her brothers? I should have her whipped. She's a good child. She she just followed a mind. She's a very good child. And I dreamed the master came in again and again to look at me. He had slave buyers with him and he'd say... There she is. A girl in her prime. How much am I bid? How did that deep scar get in her head? I buy live slaves, not dead ones. Well, is she dead or alive? Of course she's alive. Next, how much am I bid? She lies there staring like she's in another world, like she's sleeping with her eyes open. I bid nothing. I went on dreaming and dreaming. Inside my head, the rockets kept bursting. I dreamed of a land far away. And when I tried to get up to go, I'd hear my mother say, Harriet, lie back. Tossing like that, you'll throw yourself out of bed, child. Lie back. I sank back into the dark river. I lay there floating a long, long time before I heard her say, Now, stand up, Harriet. Look, there you're standing again. Uh, again? It's a miracle. Wait till I tell you, brothers, we've nursed you back to life. Nobody believed you'd live. How long was I sick? Two seasons. Two seasons just lying here? Oh, you'd sleep sometimes, and, and you'd talk out loud sometimes, like you was dreaming. You'd talk about the master. Don't you remember? Mm, some things. I remember some dreams. I remember dreaming about Nat Turner. Don't speak his name out loud. I dreamed I heard Nat Turner call Nonsense. He's been hanged and buried ten years, girl. Get him and his deeds out of your mind. He called me and told me how he burned the plantations and made an army of slaves to fight. And he called me and said, Harriet, do what I did. And I said, I can't do what men do. I can't lead an army. Then he said, you can do more. You can lead an army across the River Jordan. If that's all you dream, then, then keep quiet. That was not all. Didn't you dream good things? Yes, I did dream once I was praying. I was praying for the master and all the masters. They were looking down at me to see if I was worth buying. That was no dream. They were here. I dream I prayed to the Lord to change their hearts, but he would not. Then I said, Lord, if you won't change them, kill them. Well, who talks of killing on my grounds? It's another plot. Well, it's just Harriet's first day out of bed, Master Bodias. He can stand up now. So this is the little hero who tried to help Saul escape, huh? Now Saul will work his life out in the field where you'll go. Oh, the child is weak, master. The child is worth it. Scrawny, sickly, she's been a burden to me, but now she'll earn her share. And whatever's in that addle head of yours, girl, get it out. There'll be no revolts, no escape. If you've got any sense left, you'll obey laws. You'll be satisfied. You work in the field. No, please. She's too weak to work in the field. Please. She's too weak to eat. Please. Mother, stand up. The master's right. It's in the fields where I should work. Perhaps you really are half-witted. You want the field, huh? I want to work where there'll be fresh air and sunshine. I want to work where I'll grow strong. I'll take the field. And I went into the field. I was weak. I wanted to be strong. I plowed the ground, dug the ditches. I drove oxen. I worked in the yards. I did a man's work. I kept my dreams wrapped around me in the sunshine, in the open air. 
Though some sleighs still slipped off on the strange underground railroad, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready until I lost my fears. I lost them the day the master passed me and said, Well, I see you've done your work well, Harriet. Yes, I've worked. Uh-huh. And I can see why you're stronger than anyone else in the county now. In fact, I think you're strong enough to be sold to the Georgia rice fields. Yes, you should bring a right nice fee, don't you think so? He didn't wait for my answer, but I thought, if I'm strong enough to bring a fee, I'm strong enough to be free. When night fell, I went to the cabin of my brothers, George and Lewis. Fear was all around us. I whispered the plan to escape to them. I don't trust you. We'll meet you in the North Woods whenever you say. But I don't like it. It's too risky. I slipped away. I went across the valley to the house of poor white cobblers, the Talbots. Mrs. Talbot saw me coming and motioned to me to stay in the yard. She went in her house and came out again with a letter in her hand. Here's some money. It's not much, but it's all I have. Take this letter to the next station. They'll help you from there. How far? It's near the border of a free state, Pennsylvania. It'll be a house with a cross on the door. Ellie! Ellie, who are you talking to? Nobody, Jed. Nobody. Just looking at the stars is all. My old man, he hates the slaves. They're the cause of us being poor. Arlene, you getting mixed up in that underground business again? No, Jed, no. I'm coming. Hurry now. I'll go. I'll know the way. Just follow the North Star. Arlene! Arlene! I went back to my brothers. I found them in the woods. My heart was pounding. A roar was building up in my head. I talked to them of the trip, but they said... Tonight they're watching all the roads. They always watch the roads. But running against them like this is certain death. And what is slavery? We'll take our chances. You know nothing of the North, you know. I'll not risk it with you. You mean that? I mean it. And you, little brother? Last night another slave was sent to the gallows. He'd been betrayed by those he thought were friends. Your friends could be the same. I'll take my chances here. Stay here. Come on, be sensible. No. No, I won't take it. Why risk it now? Because there are two things I've got a right to. Liberty or death. One or the other I mean to have. I shall fight for my liberty. And when the time comes for me to go, the Lord will let them kill me. If you go, you'll go alone. I'll go alone. Then go your way. Lewis, come on. Come on. Brother. Oh, brother, don't leave me alone. Brother. The earth moved again. The rockets were off in my head again. I turned round and round. I thought of my mother, brother, sister, and the row of cabins I could see from where I stood. Then I turned and looked up at the North Star. It was brighter than any star I'd ever seen. I walked toward it. I made my way through the fields and forests, past villages and farms, past patrols and guards, sleeping in the open, in barns and under haystacks. My eyes watched the North Star until I came down into a valley. Then I saw it. I saw a block of houses, and on one there was a cross. I forgot the slave hunters and the patrols and broke into the open and ran toward it. Someone behind me shouted. Hey, you. Stop. Stop. A patrolman. He'd seen me. Stop. Stop. I ran down into the valley toward the house. I heard 
shot and stumbled. I got up and ran on until I lost sight of him. I reached the door, threw myself on it and beat and beat against it. Let me in, please, let me in. The door opened and I was inside. It seemed like a dream. I stretched out my hand and a hand met mine. It was warm. Two strange faces looked into mine. One said, Levi, take her behind the door. The patrol's coming. You help the woman. Let me handle the patrol, Hannah. They'll be suspicious of you. They're coming. What will you tell them? I'll tell them the truth. Hannah, you can't let them take her back. Wait, woman. I live by my religion. They know that. I'll let them in and ask them. Well, man, do you have to tear my door down? I'm sorry, Madam Godman. A runaway slave came this way, trying to cross the state line, I reckon. I'm only doing my duty. And what do you expect me to do? Well, my men are searching the houses along this way. You want to search my house? Oh, no. You're a woman of God. You'll tell the truth. Have you seen a slave come this way? A slave? A slave. I've never seen a slave. You're at the wrong door. Thank you, Madam Gatman. Thank you. You did it, Hannah. The Lord will forgive those who lie to save a life. I did not lie. But you told him... I told the truth. He asked if I'd seen a slave. The Lord says all men are brothers. In the eyes of God, there are no slaves. There are only men and women. I believe God. Who do you believe, Levi? I was rested, my new friend said. No, you're not in free territory yet. This is just the first station on the Underground Railroad. Our stations stretch like spider webs. South, north, east. Puritans, Quakers, Negroes run them. You won't be on free ground till you go up the hill through the woods and cross the Pennsylvania line. From there, it's easy. No high sheriffs to hunt you down. Go where you please. Are you ready? To cross that line? I've been ready a long time. Night came. I slipped through the woods. I struck out toward the border. I walked through the woods until it came over me that, like in a dream, I had crossed the line. I had crossed the River Jordan. I was free. I stood and looked around me. I was free. I looked at my hands to see if I was the same. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees. I felt I was a part of the air and the sky. I could go to Canada. I had left behind me the land I hated. Whips and chains and fears and overseers wore behind me. Ahead was a new clear life. And then, somehow, I was lonely. I was free, but there was no one to welcome me. I remembered my home was with my brothers, sisters, mother. And then... My head... The earth seemed to move under me. My head seemed to split apart. And I heard the voices of my people calling me. And then I knew which way I had to go. I turned from the North Star. I found my way again to the door with the cross on it. It opened before I knocked. Well, welcome back, Harriet. Welcome? Yes. The supper's ready. It's on the table. 
You expected me to come back? <laughs> yes, don't look surprised, friends. We knew you'd come back. But how? I didn't... Sit down. We've been a way station for guiding escaped slaves for about ten years now. Some pass this way once and we never see them again. They are satisfied to get their own freedom. Who can blame them? But now and then, one comes our way who's got the flame burning not just for his freedom, but for his brothers, sisters, friends. You burn that way, Harry. How did you know? You were thinking, what a great thing a new liberty is. You were free, but when you thought of millions who were slaves, you said, what good is my being free when my brothers are slaves? Yes, I did. Then you felt you would have no peace until the last slave was freed. That's why you came back. Many men, white and black, feel that way. It's why we run the underground. Our part is to wait for slaves to escape and to help them on. That's not the part I want to play. What part do you want? I want to go down and bring them out. I want to put them on the train and guide them. I want to be the conductor. out to learn the ways of the underground. I met the abolitionists. I talked to old John Brown, to fiery Winder Phillips, to fighting Fred Douglas, to the lion Lord Garrison, to the Quakers, the Puritans, and to the conductors and agents. And some said... Lady, you want to know who to trust when you hit the trail guiding slaves to freedom. I'll tell you. Nobody who owns a slave. Nobody. I'll tell you how it is, Miss Tubman. The Southland is like a fortress. A fortress with the guns turned inside against the people who live in it. If thee goes back too much, Miss Tubman, you'll never get out again. And I worked winters for money to buy food and clothes for slaves, and money to bribe guards and patrols. I worked the lumber mills in Canada all winter to make the money to go down into the fortress. One day, when the boss counted out my season's pay, I thought I had enough to start. Sixty-five, seventy-eight dollars. There. You earned it, all right. A right good log cutter for a woman. Sorry you ain't staying on the next season. I would, but I've got other work to do. I was ready to do my real job. I went down to the slave grounds. I gave the signals, planned the escapes. I talked with them, passed guns to them, planned the outbreaks and went deeper and deeper into the slave belt until my name seemed to spread before me. Sometimes I was a man, sometimes a woman. I walked, I rode horseback, I drove wagons and funeral cars, and once I took a train. Hey, you, where you think you're going? Me, sir? She look mighty, mighty like that uh, rebel slave, Tubman. Speak up. Where's your master? Where are you going? Oh, you can see by my ticket. I'm going south. No. South to Maryland. Oh, I see. Nah, she couldn't be Tubman. Now, would a rebel slave be heading south? No, sirree. All aboard. Let her roll. I rolled into Georgia and rolled out with slaves into Canada. I rolled and roamed the plantations. And when I knew my strength, I went into the state where I was born. I went into the region of the master I had escaped. I went back for my family. 
I had heard their voices call stronger and stronger. I had heard the voices of my brothers and my mother. I came into the village at early morning. I was an old woman with a cane. I walked near the slaves, searching for faces I knew. Then, just two yards from me, I did see a face I remembered. It was the face of my old master. Old woman, where do you belong? Yes? I said, where do you belong? You say something? Of course I said something. I, uh, your mouth opens, but I can't hear no words. Get out of the way, deaf, stone deaf. I got out of the way. I hobbled off to the slave quarters. I moved about until night, and I found the cabin of my brother. I opened the door. Then I stood in the doorway. I could see Louis struggling to rise. He thought I was the overseer. Is it time for work already? What time is it? It's time to be free, Louis. What? It's time to be free. Your voice. I'm Harriet. Harriet! Quiet, quiet. Wake up the overseer. Where's Mother? Mother? Yes, where's Mother? She and our sister were sold. Where? To whom? I don't know. South. I did my best, Harriet. I couldn't help Never them. Never mind. Wherever they are, I'll find them. <laughs> I took my brother away to the new land, and I took ten more from the rice fields with us. I saved my brother, but as I looked over the land for the woman who had brought me into the world, there was a fear in me I'd never known before. It seemed I was growing cold, deaf again. I could hardly hear friends who'd say... You've had your share of the dangers, Tuffman. Every slaveholder knows and hates you. You'll be worth more to the cause of freedom if you leave the railroad, stay north. What can I do here? Oh, plenty. Travel about the States and tell the people what you've done. I do travel, Mr. Garrison. Yes, but you don't make speeches. I free men. Mr. Garrison, I think one free man is worth a thousand speeches. I didn't say that the pressure on my head was almost too painful to bear. I knew being still would never stop it. I went down again into the armed camps. I went searching along the levees, the swamplands, looking among slave workers until I saw slaves marching from a mill. A guard was calling them on, and one came by, an old woman who looked older than I had ever pretended to be. She looked up into my face. It was my mother. Her lips parted. She said, Harriet, Harriet, my child. All right, what's holding up the line there? Move on. Mother, I've come to get you. Don't talk, Charles. Don't talk. How will I tell you? Tell them. See. Don't talk. Just, just see. Move on up there. Move on. The line passed. She was gone. I went through the men's quarters. I found Saul. Help me, Saul. I have the plans and the money. Help me to tell everyone who wants to come with us to slip away quietly. I can let them know. Go back to the river and wait. I'll sing. Those who understand, they'll come. That evening, Saul walked by the cabins, walked by the overseers and the guards, and he talked to the people. Feel the way, feel the way, feel the way to Jesus. And by nightfall, 19 had stolen away quietly to the riverbank. At night, we waded through the waters. We struck out for Canada. We dodged patrols. We climbed hills. We moved by day and slept by night. One was afraid and said, 
We'll never make it. Already they're catching up with us. Dogs will be on us. We crossed the river again. Once we fought off a patrol and escaped to the hills. Then one man fell behind. One man said to me... I'm not going any further. You're out of your head. I'm going back to live. I won't die out here. I had an answer. An old answer I'd used before another trip. I put it against his head. Well, why do you point the gun at my head? You'll go on oh. or you'll die. Oh. Which is... He went on. Night after night, clouds covered the North Star, and I felt the trees for the moss to tell our way. We trudged on, tired, hungry. My mother kept beside me, her head high. And then we broke through the forest and into the clearing. We crossed into Canada. And this time there were people to welcome us. Harriet, Harriet, come over here. Harriet, Levi, and Hannah, and agents from the road. There were hundreds of freed men I had brought out of the slave fields. Then I listened to their talk, and it seemed I had made my last trip. Sure you're going to stay home now, Harriet? I, I believe I will. I believe we can get another conductor. I believe I would like to rest. To rest and forget. But then my head seemed to roar again. I heard voices call. The old blow on my head seemed to pain again. The earth moved. Rockets burst in my head. I listened to the voices. They were the voices of slaves. They were the voices of my people. They were the voices... Oh, God, I was moved. I answered them. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell old Pharaoh to let my people go. just heard the story of Harriet Tubman as presented by Destination Freedom, a special radio series dramatizing the great democratic heritage of the Negro people. Destination Freedom is brought to you by WMAQ's Department of Public Affairs and Education and the Chicago Defender. It is written by Richard Durham, and the production is under the direction of Homer Heck. <laughs> Tubman was played by Weslyn Tilton. The supporting cast included Hope Summers, Melva Williams, Maurice Copeland, Curly Ellison, George Kluge, Arthur McCool, Charles Mountain, Cliff Norton, and Fred Pinkert. The singer was Greg Pascoe. Richard Shores composed the special music, which was played by Elwin Owen and Bobby Christian. This is Hugh Downs inviting you to be with us again next week for another in our series on the Negro in Democracy. Destination Freedom. Railway to Freedom, a story of Harriet Tubman from Destination Freedom on Independence Day in 1948 and in celebration of her bicentennial this month, 
From the big broadcast on WAMU 88.5, I'm Murray Horwitz. One of the go-to writers in the golden age of radio was Kathleen Height, who authored dozens of Gunsmoke episodes and who was active long before that. She was the first woman staff writer at CBS, and Radio Recall, published by our friends at the Metropolitan Washington Old Time Radio Club, reported how she got that job. CBS had a policy against hiring women writers, she said, so I hired on as a secretary. I figured once I got inside the building, I could destroy them from within. I badgered the head of the writing department until he gave me a chance to write. And write she did, mostly for the network's West Coast shows, including The Whistler, and nationally, first as script editor, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But she made her greatest impact, and her greatest income, as a freelance. In addition to the Marlowe series, she wrote for Suspense, Escape, Night Beat, and many other shows, including the one we're about to hear, Rogers of the Gazette. That Rogers, the editor of a small-town newspaper, was played by Will Rogers, Jr. And in the credits, you'll hear a lot of the names that pop up on Gunsmoke. There are quite a few references to the Emporia, Kansas editor William Allen White, a champion of small-town America and progressive values, and, along with H.L. Mencken, probably the most famous journalist of the 20th century. And you'll hear a mention of a desk blotter, the thick paper mat that nearly every office desk had in the days when fountain pens were the dominant writing instrument. From August 26, 1953, it's the CBS series, Rogers of the Gazette. Ladies and gentlemen, the editor of the Illyria Weekly Gazette, Mr. Will Rogers, Jr. Thank you. I see where they recently banned another book in that big city back east. Reminds me what a wise old man once told me. He said, most of the best books and all of the best people increase in stature if they stay out of print. Rogers of the Gazette, offering you again tonight, transcribed, another heartwarming story of a country newspaper and its friendly editor, and starring Will Rogers, Jr., It's a town between you and your destination on summer trips. A little too hot in August and September, and if you drove through in the winter, it would be a little cold. You might stop there for a cold drink in summer or a hot drink in winter. But the chances are you'll leave both times with the comment, Why on earth do people live in a town like Illyria? Well, they live there because it's home. You can't know the town or its people by driving down Main Street, and you can't hear its laughter or its tears, or know its easy, unhurried pace. So, next time you're driving through, why don't you plan to stop a while? Introduce yourself. Illyria might surprise you. It's surprised city people before. Now, you take that fellow there walking along the square. That's Doc Clemens. 
You could find out an awful lot about Elyria if you followed Doc around for a few days and nights. Afternoon, Eve. Afternoon, Doc. Hot enough for you? Yeah, sure is. Afternoon, Hardy. Afternoon, Doc. Hot enough for you? Yeah, yeah, sure is. Emma. Emma Hunter, stop where you are. Oh, I was afraid you'd be the first one I run into, and... Here you are. When I say flat on your back for three days, I ain't just saying it for practice, Emma. I said three days, and it was yesterday evening when I said it. And I told you I'd do it if I could. You doctors make me sick. Just take to your bed, you say. You need a good rest. But you never quite point out who's going to mind to the cooking or the grocery shopping or empty the pan under the icebox. You just march right on home now. Flat on my back for three days. How? Just how? Is that your grocery list? Indeed it is, and I mean to get it if you'll quit barking at me out here in the hot sun. I'll get the groceries, and you get on home and get to bed like I told you. Now you just stop being so bossy. I'll get my own groceries, thank you very much. Emma, we'd both feel mighty silly if I picked you up and carried you home. Why, of all the... <laughs> I don't think you could pick me up. <laughs> I don't think so either. So skedaddle on home with you before I have to prescribe for the both of us. Oh, Doc, you make me feel such a fool. Go on. I'll go, I'll go, but take a good look at the celery, Doc, and don't bring me any if it's reedy. And leave the icebox pan be. I'll empty it when I bring the groceries. Doggone it all. Afternoon, Maggie. Will. Hi, Doc. Afternoon, Doc. <sighs> Maggie, what gets into women? You'll have to do better than that, Doc. I mean, what makes them so downright pig-headed stubborn? Well, men, for one thing. <laughs> <laughs> you asked for that one, Doc. <laughs> Who'd you have a run-in with? Emma Hunter, bless her heart. She called me yesterday and told me she was weak as a cat. So I stopped by there last evening, and sure enough, she was. Trying to do too blame much in all this heat and all. So I prescribed a tonic. Told her to take to her bed for three days, flat on her back. And I run into her just now, out in the hot sun, big as you please, thinking to do her grocery shopping. Why, you should have picked her up right then and there and carried her home. Exactly what I said. Oh, you two make me sick. Emma's all alone. She's got to eat... Look after a house, cook her food. Exactly what she said. Well, that's what gets into women and makes them so downright pig-headed stubborn. Well, now, I'm sorry, Maggie. No real offense, you know. I just wish to high heaven Emma would take care of herself, though. Is she real sick, Doc? Well, not yet. Just plum tuckered. Wore out. A few days of good rest would do wonders for her. How'd it be if I phoned Mrs. Weatherwax? I know she'd be glad to see that Emma had her meals and food brought in and things like that. Well, that'd be a big help, Will. Sure would. I don't know how Emma would take to it, I'll but talk I... to Emma. She'll be all right about it. Uh, don't forget, when you talk to Mrs. Weatherwax, Will, give a little warning about your guest. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Company coming, Will? <laughs> yeah, sort of. Student from the journalism school at State College. Coming for a week to see how our country newspapers run. Yeah, kind of like an intern. Kind of. 
Ran into Dean Bradford fishing a few weeks back. He told me about this scheme he's worked out with other country editors in the state. And I told him to send me somebody. And, well, here, this wire just came a while ago. Arrived Tuesday morning, ready for action. C.J. Griffith. Hmm. Sounds like a willing worker. Yeah. Only thing is, though, I don't know what we'll be able to offer him in the way of action. We'll find stuff for him to do, I guess. Good thing, you know, actual work on a country paper. After all that theory they pump into you at school. Uh, well, sounds real practical to me. There may be a murder for him to report. Huh? If you don't call Mrs. Weatherwax and tell her he's coming tomorrow. Oh, yeah, yeah. I better do that, all right. Want to hand me the phone, Maggie? Uh-huh. Well, yep. I got to mosey along. Stick around, Doc. I want to talk to you about that overpass business west of town. Well, I'll stop in a little later, Will. I got to errand to run just now. Oh, say, I saw Hardy on the square a few minutes back. Did you talk to him? No, just spoke. Speaking of pig-headed stubborn, Hardy Rutledge is doing a pretty good job of it, and he's a man. <laughs> I gotta give you that, Maggie. <laughs> well, we'll talk about it later, huh, Will? Fine, Doc. Afternoon to you. Bye, Doc. Bye. The phone, Will? Huh? Mrs. Weatherwax. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you're in pretty early, aren't you, Maggie? Morning, Will. I haven't been here long. I just woke up earlier than usual this morning. What's happened to the office? I straightened things. Just a little. You sure did. I didn't know. For a minute, I thought it was in the wrong place. <laughs> Looks like a regular parlor. We ought to keep it this way all the time, Will. It looks nice, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Don't know whether I'll be able to find anything, though, but it looks real nice. You do, too, Maggie. Oh, it's just a dress I haven't worn for a while. I don't think I've ever seen it. I don't think you ever have either. But I've worn it before. The church things. Hmm. Goodness. Pencil all sharpened. Typewriter's been dusted. Say, what's that? A new blotter on my desk? No, I just turned the old one over. Oh. Well? Well? What's it all about? He's due here any minute now, Will. And if you don't have any pride in how the Gazette office looks to a newcomer, well, I do. Oh, the kid from journalism school. Uh, what's his name? C.J. Griffith. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he ought to be real impressed with us, Maggie. We sure look nice. Maybe you could run over and get your suit pressed before he comes, Will. He won't be looking at me. Not with you all slicked up like that. <laughs> well. Uh, of course, uh, he's just a college boy, Maggie. Um, he might be too young for you. Will Rogers... I think that remark was entirely uncalled for. Whatever I've done, I've done for the Gazette, and I won't have you thinking... <clears throat> oh. oh, you must be Rogers. Uh, well, yes, ma'am. I'm Will Rogers. Glad to know you, Rogers. I'm Griffith. Griffith? C.J. Griffith. Didn't you get my wire? Well, yeah, we did, only... Uh, well, this is my assistant, uh, Maggie Button, Miss Griffith. Button? Miss Griffith? Well, uh, sit down. Sit down. <laughs> I'll be honest with you, Miss Griffith. Maggie and me, we were sort of expecting a boy. So was my mother. Yeah. Uh, well, Will. Uh, 
Yes, Maggie? Do you think the day's too young for me to go out for a cup of coffee? Too young? Too young. Oh, <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Go right ahead, Button. Rogers and I can handle things here. I'll bet you can at that. Um, cigarette, Rogers? Uh, oh, no thanks. I've read your crusade. What's blocking it? Crusade? The railroad crossing west of town. Isn't that your current cause? Well, I guess you could call it that. If you came in that way this morning, you must have noticed it's a blind approach from both sides. And you want the town to build an overpass, according to last week's Gazette. Oh, well, I've been plugging away at it a long time now. To tell you the truth, Miss Griffith, I don't care if they build a pass over it or under it, just so long as they make it a safe crossing. Who's the opposition? Well, no one's exactly against the idea, but Rutledge and some of the other boys of the town council say it's too expensive for the taxpayers to bear just now. And low taxes are a blame good argument any time. Only it shouldn't apply where public welfare and safety is concerned. Hmm. Any way to discredit Rutledge? Hardy? Why, he's a fine man. We just don't see eye to eye on this proposition, that's all. It'd be a break, though, if we could dig up something on him. You know, a personal scandal, something like that? No, ma'am. I don't see any advantage to that at all. I just thought that... Yes, well... ma'am. Now then, I want... Well, good morning, John. Well? Say, hold it. I want you to meet someone. I got work to do. This is Miss Griffith, John Reed. Hello, Reed. Huh. Miss Griffith takes journalism at State College, John. Good Lord. John's our press man. In fact, he's our press room, from handset to linotype. John's the whole show. I've worked in the shop a lot at school. I know typefaces from Gaudi to Gothic, and engraving from line cuts to photolithography. She going to be around here? This week, part of her journalism course. Keep her out front. Now, John, take it easy. One of her feet in my shop, and both of mine walk out. John, John's sort of temperamental-like. I didn't mean to offend him. I I thought he might be interested. Well, you just kind of have to handle him. Old devil, he must be near 80, maybe older. He's worked with all of them, including Bill White and Emporia. Bless his heart. Yeah, but don't tell him that. He's the meanest, most cantankerous, sweetest old guy in the world. Talk to him about Bill White. He'll come around. I'll remember that. How was your coffee, Maggie? Fine, Will. Just fine. Well, we've been jawing here, getting no special place in a hurry. Oh, I uh, ran into Mrs. Weatherwax on the street, Will. Oh? Oh, say, Miss Griffith, that reminds me. I better be taking you out to the house so you can get settled and all. Fine with me. I'd call Mrs. Weatherwax before I went home, Will. I sort of got the impression she had something she wanted to talk to you about. That's so? Mm Mm-hmm. Of course, she may have packed up and left by now, because, like Miss Griffith's mother, Mrs. Weatherwax was expecting a boy. You are listening.
listening to Rogers of the Gazette, starring Mr. Will Rogers, Jr. And now, we continue with the second act of tonight's show. Mrs. Weatherwax, if you'll just stop what you're doing a minute and talk this out with me. Mrs. Weatherwax. Now, please, Mrs. Weatherwax, just stop a minute and listen to me. Miss Griffith will be down in a moment, and we're not going to have another chance to talk. Oops. Sorry. We've had people stay here before, and you never seem to mind. I don't see that it's any different this time. I know that I told you last night she was a fella, but... But you see, last night I thought she was a fella. And then this morning when she came to the office, well, she wasn't. Now, Miss Weatherwax, please, before you turn that on, honest, it'll be all right. She'll just be here till Friday, and you'll be here all the time, and why, everything will be just as proper as it can be. Honest, Mrs. Weatherwax, as far as I'm concerned, she might just as well be a fella. Oh, Mrs. Weatherwax. Well, she certainly looks straight through me. Oh, Mrs. Weatherwax is all right. She's just a little sort Temperamental? Of... Well, sometimes. Sweet old soul, though. Sure takes wonderful care of Jill and me. Where'd you say your daughter is? Mm, she's been staying up summer camp. Sure miss her. Well, I guess the thing to do now is take you around town and introduce you to the folks. That's a big part of being a country editor, Miss Griffith. You gotta know your town, your county, and your people and their problems. What's your housekeeper's problem? <laughs> Nothing I can change with an editorial. Well, I'll tell you, Rogers, if it's all the same to you, suppose I just tackle Illyria alone and unannounced. Meet the people my way and see what I can do with them. I'd like to write some first-hand impressions. You know, uh, a roving reporter looks inside Illyria. Well. Hmm. All right, Miss Griffith. Only uh, one thing about folks here, uh, just don't underestimate them. Oh, and don't overestimate the power of the press. You bet I will. Bye. No, second thought, I think I'll leave you off the hook a while. Will, where on earth have you been for the last hour? Oh, I stopped and poked around the library a while after I left Miss Griffith. 
And then coming back, I fed the pigeons in the square. You better hang up that phone, Maggie. Mm-hmm. Well, just sit down and prepare. Oh, say, remind me, Maggie. We got to raise a little ruckus about that fountain in the square. Now, those blame pigeons... That's if just... we ever put out another edition of the Gazette. Well, what are you talking about? I'm talking about Miss Front Page Scoop. Huh? C.J. Griffith. We've had at least a dozen calls in the last half hour. Uh, you take it. All right. Valeria Weekly Gazette. Will Rogers, I think the dad blamed heat's got you, and it's too hot a day for me to be running the temperature. Doc, what's the matter? This... This C.J. Griffith of yours. She tells me you authorized her to go around town taking down her impressions of people and things. That's right, I did, Doc. Well, she's got the wrong dad-blamed impression of me, and I'll state it publicly if I have to. I don't care for her methods. Now, you listen You're just to me. getting yourself hotter, Doc. And in a minute, I'll reach my boiling point. Just tell her for me that window peeping is a minor offense, and I don't give a hoot what she thinks. I'm calling on Emma Hunter as her physician. And the bald-faced fact that Miss C.J. Griffith caught me emptying Emma Hunter's icebox pan in no way connects us romantically. Inside Illyria. She's been doing it all over town, Will. You want to see the list of people who've called? Not now, Maggie. I want to later, though. I'll, uh, I'll pick them up Friday, then, John. Thanks a lot. Ah, hello, Will. Maggie. Hi, Hardy. Mr. Rutledge. I uh, had a little printing job for John, but as long as I'm here, I'd like to ask a favor of you, Will. Do my best, Hardy. Will you lay off for one week? Lay off? Just this one issue of the Gazette. Will you leave out the editorial about the railroad crossing? I don't see what that would accomplish. Well, it'd mean a lot to me. You've stirred up a lot of public pressure, and it's making my job a lot harder, Will. Yeah, but a proper crossing would mean a lot to Illyria, Hardy. All right, Will. Excuse me, I'm in a hurry. Pardon me. Hey, wait a minute. Aren't you Hardy Rutledge? Oh, yes, I am. I'd like to get a statement Uh, from you. Miss Griffith, come here and sit down. That's all right, Hardy. Just forget about it. Okay, Will. I don't get it, Rogers. I've been looking all over town for him. I saw his picture in the town hall. Sit down. Yes, sir. Is that your uh, inside Illyria? Yes, but they're just rough notes. I'll have to type it up and polish it and... Hey, what are you doing? Miss Griffith, I want to have a little talk with you about facts and truth and ethics and the responsibility of the press. Let's take a look at her. Pretty good-looking front page, huh? Looks great to me, Rogers. Want me to proofread it? (laughs) Don't let John hear you say that. Nobody checks even his galley proofs, except to admire their beauty. Oh, Maggie! Yeah, Will? Uh, What are you saving this fudge column for on page one? Oh, in case there's any change in Mr. Maynard's condition at the hospital. We've got the story now, though. There, column six. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, if I go home now, Will? Sure, yeah. Wait a minute, we'll all go. John can put the Gazette to bed without us. I'm happy to do it. Oh, I don't want to go yet. What I mean is I've followed this week's issue all the way, Rogers. You go on, but can't I stay till John runs off a few at least? Well, oh, sure, if you want to. Only it's pretty late to be coming home all alone. 
I'll ask John to tell me another story of when he worked for Bill White in Emporia. He'll see me home. <laughs> I guess he will at that. Oh, uh, tell him to use his own judgment about filling in that space on page one. Either let it out or use a filler. He'll do what he wants to anyway. I'll tell him, Rogers. Good night, you two. Good, Good night. night. Good night. Good night. How does page one look to you this morning, Rogers? Oh, fine, fine. Hey, what's this about? I wondered if you'd ever see it. We got ourselves a real scoop. I don't think Hardy Rutledge has a leg to stand on now. At press time last night, the Gazette learned that Hardy Rutledge, long an obstacle in the way of the railroad crossing issue, is joining the construction firm of Clark and Yancey effective today. The Gazette will watch with interest to see if Rutledge's attitude towards the public safety will change in view of his new affiliation. What in the holy name happened to John? John? He doesn't deserve the credit. I do. You? Well, certainly. After you and Button left last night, I came across some cards Rutledge had John print up for him to pick up today. I wrote that story. I, I don't know what to say. It was just one of those naturals, Rogers. You say in your editorial that Clark and Yancey submitted the highest bid to the town council for building an overpass. And now, after blocking you all the way, it looks to me like Rutledge was bought off. Miss Griffith, I'm not very interested in how it looks to you. Even if it's true, and I can't believe it of Hardy, you had no right to print that story. Why not? We run the only printing press in town. Hardy had to bring his work here. And it's just not ethical to use that kind of information without authorization. Rogers, I thought you'd be proud And more of than me. that, before you make wild charges and speculations about Rutledge's attitude, you better be careful and do some factual investigation. And then when you do that, you print your findings with your opinions on the editorial page. Oh, well, there you are, John. I want to talk to you. Great little reporting job on page one. Mm, well, John, I don't understand. Why did you print it? To teach you a little something yourself about the responsibility of the press. A good country editor stays with his paper until it's ready to hit the streets. You never saw Bill White go home before his work was done and leave some lame brain collegian to run amok? Yes, uh, you're right, John. You're dead right. But what about your responsibility? Young damn fool. I just printed one copy of it, the one on your desk. Went to a lot of trouble to teach you a lesson. See that you remember it. Oh, morning, John. My card's ready? On Maggie's desk. You can pay Will for it. Well, I... I guess you saw the cards, Will. Oh, not officially, Hardy. But from what I understand, I don't know whether to congratulate you or not. <laughs> Well, it's a good move for me, all right. But it's a better one for Elyria. How's that? It's why I ask you to lay off for a week, Will. I'm going with the firm on the condition that they do a rush job on that overpass construction and that they do it for the amount the taxpayers voted to spend for this purpose in the last election. Oh, that's, that's wonderful, Hardy. Sure wish you could have told me this before. Clark and Yancey wanted to stay out of the picture for business reasons until now. You'd be surprised, Will. If all the facts weren't made known at the same time, 
Some irresponsible people might have misinterpreted this whole business. Yeah, you're right, Hardy. I sure hate to think of what had happened if they had. just heard Rogers of the Gazette, starring Mr. Will Rogers, Jr., with Georgia Ellis as Maggie Button. Tonight's story was written by Kathleen Height and produced and transcribed by Norman MacDonald. Featured in the cast were Parley Bear, Karen Steele, Harry Bartell, Anne Morrison, and Edgar Barrier. The special music was composed by Renee Garagank and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. This evening, CBS Radio and Alfredo Antonini's orchestra invite you to another Straw Hat concert over most of these same stations. It's strictly informal. So for sprightly summertime melody, stick around and get a cheerful little earful of CBS Radio's Straw Hat Concert. This is Roy Rowland speaking. America listens most to the CBS Radio Network. From the summer of 1953, an episode of Rogers of the Gazette. Its writer, Kathleen Height, went on to write not only for Gunsmoke and Fort Laramie on radio, but also for television shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents and General Electric Theater. We have a link to that radio recall piece about her on our Facebook page. This is The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arold Bailey. The audio engineers are Mike Kidd and Kenny Pirog. And this is WAMU Washington, your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. One of radio's unsung, but definitely not unheard, early heroes was Aura Nichols. An ex-vaudevillian, she virtually created the art of sound effects. She didn't do it single-handedly, of course. Her first partner was her husband, Arthur. But in the late 1920s, when CBS hired them and a couple of collaborators to staff the first-ever network sound effects department, it was Ms. Nichols who led the team. Scholars list her among the most important pioneers in radio, And when Orson Welles brought his Mercury Theater to the air in 1938, it's fair to say that he couldn't have made it a success without Aura Nichols. After the famous War of the Worlds Halloween broadcast, Mr. Welles wrote her a note. Dearest Aura, thanks for the best job anybody could ever do for anybody. We're going to hear some of that CBS work of hers now as part of the distinguished, often highly experimental series, the Columbia Workshop. It was an important landmark in radio's learning to tell stories, and Aura Nichols' sound effects were a big part of that process. So was Bernard Herrmann's music, which we'll also hear. Even techniques that are simple to do today, reverb, or, as they might have said back then, an echo chamber, had to be invented. And remember, 
In what we're about to hear, everything was being done live with no room for error. This particular program is kind of a diptych, two short stories. The first one is especially interesting today when we see so many dystopian and end-of-the-world movies like the recent Don't Look Up. The second tale contains a little joke. The name of the pompous general is Petard, and I'll just say that if you don't get it, you might look up the original French meaning of that word. From August 8, 1937, and CBS, it's An Incident of the Cosmos and The Last Citation from the Columbia Workshop. Columbia Workshop, under the direction of Irving Reese. Columbia Workshop offers as its 54th program in a series devoted to experimental radio drama. Work is new to the microphone. The first, An Incident of the Cosmos by Paul Y. Anderson, famous political correspondent of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, which is being repeated by special request. And the second, The Last Citation by John Whedon of the editorial staff of the New Yorker magazine. An Incident of the Cosmos by Paul Y. Anderson. In a vast dwelling on an outer planet of the solar system of Betelgeuse, a being of enormous size, with a head as big as a piano, is staring through a giant telescope, the upper end of which is lost in the clouds. His wife watches him. I wish I could make you share the wonders that the great star map is with me. Come. Look through this eyepiece for a moment. Very well. But I wish you would rest for a while. I shall adjust the 10,000 diameter focus. There. Can you see? I see nothing but a cold, distant group of tiny lights. That is solar unit number 19288X. An interesting group. That third concentric satellite is trillions of miles away. It is called Earth. What can be interesting about such remote and barren specks? Barren? How can we be sure that our planet is the only one inhabited by life? Life? I grant you that the idea is fantastic. But then so is all astronomy from the average point of view. Think, for example, how difficult it would be for Garney, your servant, to understand that those satellites may no longer be in existence. It is difficult for me, too, and absurd, surely. How can we see something that does not exist? We may simply be seeing the light it gave off when it did exist. But is not light instantaneous? It travels incredibly fast. 186,000 miles a second. Then if it goes so fast, why would we not see it go out immediately if the satellite ceased to exist? Because it is so distant 
that even at the speed light travels, even at 186,000 miles a second, it will take 272 years for us to see it go out. Incredible. Yet you speak of light on this distant, cold pinpoint of light. Who knows? Oh, it is too much for me to think about. I shall go prepare your food. Very well, dear. Uh, if I could only get greater magnification on this telescope, I might be able to determine if there is life there. Life. It is incredible that life may exist on that whole speck of light which left that infinite Gentlemen, you have come from the corners of the earth for this meeting. I'm glad you didn't forget the vow we made 40 years ago. It's now August 8th, 1937. On August 8th, 1897, we each of us promised that we would seek the answer to what we thought was mankind's greatest problem. You, Charles Anson, chose pathology. Yes, please. You, Henry Kramer, philosophy. Yes. And I, physics. Yes, Dave. But we have uh, merely brought theories, formulae. Uh, rem uh, reveal the mystery of this uh, amazing machine you have here in your laboratory. It's as mysterious and remote-looking as... That distant star twinkling through the window pane. Yes, Bates. The report first. Gentlemen, for 40 years I sought the secret to save the world. And in this machine I have found the answer. Come closer and examine it. Vacuum tubes, rods and switches. Glass and steel and wood. Mankind's salvation. <laughs> it looks complicated enough. Fearfully. This is a device for controlling and liberating atomic energy. From a single cubic inch of air, sufficient power may be derived to perform all the labor of New York for a month. Fantastic. I have liberated mankind, freed it forever from the curse of labor. Be careful, Kramer. Don't go too near that switch. If the tube were smashed and that switch thrown, it would dissolve the earth into electronic dust in approximately one five-thousandth of a second. That's a small enough part of a second to end the agony of mankind. Mankind need no longer suffer this agony because I have developed a standard serum which confers immunity to all diseases, together with a formula for arresting physical decay. Well, say, for accident, man is redeemed forever from the curse of death. That, too, is amazing. I congratulate you, Charles. With my device to free man from labor and yours for eternal life, Man is complete. And you, Henry, what has philosophy taught you these 40 years? Life under any circumstances can be justified only by the pursuit of truth. I sought and found the one truth. Uh, what is it? Uh, tell us, Kramer. The one truth is that truth cannot be found, for there is no means of identifying it. <laughs> ah, but now that I am ready to bestow eternal life upon man... He will live long enough to find the means of identifying it. Yes, and I will give him complete leisure, freedom from labor to pursue the truth forever if need be. What do you say to that, Henry? Yes, now what do you say? Gentlemen, 
I offer you this daily newspaper for the answer. Look at it. A few hours ago, it came off the presses. A few hours before that, it was light. Read it, gentlemen. Perhaps you will find the answer. We're directly over the city, Captain. Quarter speed. Quarter speed. Quarter speed. Altitude, 26,000 feet. Adjust, sight, zero. Deviation, four. Deflection, eight. Sight, zero. Sight, zero. Deviation, four. Deviation, four. Deflection, eight. Deflection, eight. Sighting, hospital and government building directly below. Release, projectile. Release, projectile. Release, projectile. Take the witness. Now, Mr. Green... You say you saw the defendant on the afternoon of October 16th. Yes. What was he doing? He was at home, playing with his dog and child. Take to witness. Now, Mr. White, you say you saw the defendant on the afternoon of October the 16th, too. Yeah. What was he doing? He was pointing a machine gun at the teller at the Ninth National Bank. Attorney for the defense. Gentlemen, look at him. Look at this man. They'd have you believe guilty of this foul crime. Is this the face of a criminal? No, gentlemen. Look into your hearts for the answer. Seek in his face the truth. Would he be capable of such an act as charged? Look into his face and into your hearts, gentlemen, and send him back to his dog and child. Turn in for the prosecution. How can you judge so vile a... Scoundrel! Look at him. See how he sneers. See the face of society's enemy. Look into his face, as my worthy colleague has suggested. If this beast is freed to roam the streets, no man, woman, or child is safe in this city. You must place him far from where he can again damage society. Guilty. Not 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 have you got lumbago, arthritis, meningitis, colitis, or tonsillitis? Have you got a corn? You got a bunion? You got swollen feet? Rub it in. It'll cure them. Rub it on your head. It'll make hair spot on the window pane. Bottle sunshine, folks. Bottle sunshine. Aren't you coming to bed, Lamington? Uh huh. Da 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 Tonight, tomorrow, my dear, before noon, I shall have made $10,000. That's how much I stand to clear on Bannister's note. I'm calling it tomorrow. But you said he doesn't have a penny. No, he'll get it somewhere. Where, dear? I don't know, but he'll get it. Mr. Bannister's someone in society. He wishes to remain someone. You've known him a long time, haven't you? Yes. I'll answer it, dear. Hello? Hello, Walter. This is Bannister. Yes, Bannister. Walter, I've got to have an extension on that note. It won't be more than for a few days, but... Sorry, really, but I've got to insist on tomorrow. But I can't make it tomorrow. I've told you that, Walter. Then I'll have to... Walter, you can't do that. Why, we've 
known each other for years. We've been to school together as kids. You've got to put that above this. I'm sorry, Bannister, but I can't let business and sentiment get mixed up. It doesn't work. All right. Hello? Hello? He hung up. What was that sound? I could hear it over here. Oh, I don't know. Must have dropped a book. Come to bed now, Walter. Da -da -dee, da -dum. Yes, dear. Da -da -dee, da -dee. We're going to be very happy, aren't we, Lampkins? We're going to make a pile of money. Scads of it before we're through. And it's all we need beside each other to be very happy. Yes, that's all we need. gentlemen, in this cold print. A few hours ago it rolled off the presses. A few hours before that it was light. Well, I can't see what I wonder what do. will happen tomorrow and tomorrow, when you release your great machine bait to liberate mankind forever. Or uh, when you bestow eternal life, Anson. Mankind will have the time to correct these lapses in its behavior once I remove the curse of toil. Yes, Kramer. I'm afraid you've not proved your point. Now that I have bestowed eternal life, man will live long enough to find the truth. Man will never find the truth. The truth is not identifiable. Oh, we have mastered infinite forces. In that machine which you are examining now, lightning is chained, power harnessed, energy freed. If the tube on that machine were smashed and the switch thrown, the earth would dissolve into electronic dust in approximately one five thousandth of a second. In me, man attains the absolute idea. In me, he achieves the absolute act of will. One five thousandth of a second to end the agony of mankind. Here, here, what are you doing? Don't touch that. Don't touch that switch. Don't! Don't!
And now for the second half of this evening's workshop program, we present The Last Citation by John Whedon. On a hillside, in the late afternoon, they are burying General Faithown. Full of years, campaigns, and medals, the general died in his bed. He will rest now as he wished on this quiet slope overlooking the graves of thousands of men whom he commanded. Comrades in arms, comrades in death. state your business. Who's in command here? I must ask for your credentials first. I need no credentials. I'm General Petard, I tell you. That means nothing here. Look here, my man. I'm not accustomed to that kind of an answer. You'll keep a civil tongue in your head, or by heaven, I'll... 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 I wouldn't try to draw that sword, General. You'll find it rusted in the scabbard. Hmm. Hmm. This is damned irregular. Some conspiracy in this. What's going on here? Do you hear me? What are you up to? Out with it! What are you up to? Can you answer that? Why are you here? I? Oh, I'm carrying out orders. Does a general take orders? Whose orders? I don't know. <laughs> How do you like it? Listen, I've had enough of your insolence. Go to your commanding officer, whoever he is, and tell him that General Petard wants to see him. General Petard! Do you hear? And do it at once, or by the living... This man says he is General Petard. I know. We were expecting the general. May I say, General, that we have been looking forward for a long time to your coming. And may I say I resent the insulting behavior of your country. Oh, I'm sure he intended nothing but the usual military courtesies. We want to make you feel at home here, General. If you will follow me, please. But I've been insulted, and I demand that that man be disciplined. You must forgive him. He died young. He died? Of course. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What place is this? No place. Can't anyone give me a straight answer here? What day is it? What time is it? No time. Does the idea frighten you, General? Surely a man on his post terms with death as you have been all these years would... Let it never be said that General Picard was afraid of anything. Spoken like your very own self, General. We must ask you to overlook any irregularities in our military conduct, General. You see, we are really only playing soldier. 
Ordinarily, matters are handled more uh, straightforwardly here. But we wanted to meet you on your own ground, so to speak, in order to give you every possible advantage. I don't know what you're driving at. Where are we going? We enter here. What's this? Who are these men? Surely you recognize the court-martial, General. Your Honor, gentlemen, the accused, General Petard. Accused? I? Accused of what? That will be brought out in due course. If indeed there is any doubt in your mind. Let me urge you to do nothing to antagonize the court. Throw yourself on its mercy. See here, I don't know you. I don't know anything about this. I've had nothing to say here. I protest. I refuse to recognize the jurisdiction of this court. This court takes its jurisdiction on no authority other than its own. It needs no other. You will stand trial whether you recognize it or not. Then I demand time to prepare my case. You have had a whole lifetime for that, General. And I must say the case you have built up is most consistent and convincing. I protest this court displays prejudice before the case is even opened. This case was opened some 65 years ago. The facts have all been established. The evidence is a matter of public record. It only remains to sum up and to hear what the prisoner has to say in his defense. This, this is irregular from start to finish. I protest. I demand that this court... General, it is you who are on trial here, not the court. But it is outrageous. I absolutely protest. This is a travesty on justice. Oh, come, General. We both know how these things are done. In conducting this trial... The court is merely following the precedent established by the procedure of your own military court. What could be fairer? Advocate for the prosecution. Your Honor, and gentlemen of the court, I will be brief in my summary. You have seen that this man, Petard, at the age of 17, dedicated himself to a career of organized murder. I have shown that it was a free choice and that his sole motive then and throughout his life was personal glory and power. He spread the doctrine that no man can trust his neighbor and supported it by his own example. For his own purposes, by conniving and manipulation, he fomented war. He preyed upon the weakness of those who were carried away by it and drafted by force those who abhorred it. He directed the suppression of free speech and the international dissemination of lies, and he was proud of it. He organized a bureau of treachery with secret agents all over the world, and he was proud of that. He fostered the development of poison gas, liquid fire, aerial bombs, long-range guns for use against women and children in cities. Those who joined him in his bloody march, he rewarded with empty honors, and those who recoiled from it he shot down. In his lifetime, he was responsible for the torture and death of millions of his fellow men and for the suffering of their families. And throughout all this, the only justification he has ever offered is that ancient and meaningless incantation, war is war. Look at him, that venerable old man, standing there in his pride with his medals on his chest, a sweet, Old man. There's blood on your hands, Petard. 
No legendary fiend in the wildest nightmare has ever approached what that man has been guilty of in cold, hideous fact. I demand for him the severest penalty which this court can inflict. The advocate for the defense. Your Honor and gentlemen of the court, on the prisoner's behalf, I can deny none of the charges presented. I can only ask the court's mercy on the ground that General Paytard was a man. Nothing more. He was the product of the times he lived in and of the men who lived before him. He was not the master of the forces he represented. He was their puppet. To his subordinates, he was known as Old Blunderbuss. And he was just that. A blundering fool with delusions of power, awed by his own majesty, playing blindly with the dangerous forces that were put in his way. A fool to be pitied as well as condemned. For the harm he did, he was only... Stop it! Stop it! I didn't authorize this man to speak for me. He was appointed by the court. Well, I don't want any apologists. And I don't want the support of pacifists, either. I speak for myself here. Very well, General. Speak. To begin with, I resent being called in question this way. You have the advantage of me for the moment, but you'll pay for this humiliation. Mark my words. The clerk of the court will mark the General's words. We tremble before your wrath, General, but we must humbly ask you to come to the point. Can you say anything in your defense? I can say in all modesty that at no time in my life have I failed to act as an officer and a gentleman. And what do you mean by that? That is something that would never have to be explained to an officer and a gentleman. We stand rebuked and unenlightened. Proceed. I will not stoop to answer most of the charges which have been made here. They were the ravings of a pacifist. We all want peace, certainly, but not at the cost of national honor. I have advocated military preparedness because I know that it is the only way to maintain peace and to preserve the institutions for which our forefathers fought and died. If I have been hard on my men at times, it has been for the sake of discipline and for the good of the service. Whatever I have done, I have done unselfishly for the protection and glory of my country. I have fought the good fight, and I have played the game. A bloody game. You really believe all these words, General? I do. You have no regret? Why should I? I have the satisfaction of knowing that I have done my job and done it well, as few men could. This military preparedness, as you call it, designed, you say, for the preservation of peace, resulted in the greatest war ever known and cost the lives of eight million men. Do you not feel, because of that, that possibly your career was a mistake? Let history judge of that. That should make it easier for the court. It uh, should not take us long to reach a verdict, gentlemen. You will understand, General Petard, that in making an example of you, we have at heart 
Only the good of the service. Not the service you boast of, but a service into which every man is drafted at birth. The service of mankind. To that service, we find you guilty of high treason. There's just one thing you've forgotten in this little farce, gentlemen. I'm dead. You're dead. We're all dead. What's done is done. What's done is only the beginning. You can't do anything to me. You can't touch me. I'm out of your reach now. I call on a higher court than this to judge me. There is no higher court than this. has presented as its 54th program two short fantasies, an incident of the cosmos by Paul Y. Anderson, famous political correspondent of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and the last citation by John Whedon of the editorial staff of the New Yorker magazine. Bernard Herrmann composed a special musical score, and William Pringle was featured in the part of General Petard. Irving Reese directed. The workshop is always glad to receive your suggestions, criticisms, and comments on these programs. Next week, the Columbia Workshop will present John Galsworthy's famous play, Escape. You are cordially invited to tune in at this same hour. The Columbia Workshop with two short stories broadcast in the summer of 1937. It came to you from the big broadcast over WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. Even more than Hollywood films or radio shows, the Broadway theater was the pinnacle of show business in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. And there's no better indicator of what a big deal it was than the first nighter program, which ran for nearly 25 years, alternating between NBC and CBS. It proffered a very vivid audio illusion that you were going to an opening night with the debonair Mr. First Nighter. The truth of the matter is that the plays were written for radio, not for the stage, and the show itself was produced far away from Broadway, first in Chicago and then in Hollywood. But it's not hard to imagine listeners closing their eyes and being transported to the glitter and glamour they dreamed about. You'll hear what I mean in this February 12, 1948 example called Love is Stranger Than Fiction. It includes references to several authors and movie stars and a joke that refers to the best-selling book, The Egg and I. Oh, and speaking of women in radio, a listener wrote us recently archly asking if the actor Virginia Gregg had appeared in every old-time radio show. Well, she has a minor part in this one from CBS and the First Nighter Program. Captain. 
Campana's First Nighter Program. From the Little Theater off Times Square. Starring Olin Soule and Barbara Luddy with an all-star cast presented by Campana, the quality name in cosmetics. Theater Time, Broadway, and tonight a new play is scheduled for its premiere performance at the Little Theater off Times Square. If you've never attended an opening night on the Great White Way, then you have the treat of a lifetime in store for you. And here is our host for the evening, the genial first-nighter. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Traffic is slow these wintry nights, so let's be off to an early start, shall we? My cab is waiting. Won't you step in? All right, driver, to the Little Theater. Broadway across 42nd Street, past the Paramount Theater, the Astor Hotel. And now, just ahead, is the little theater off Times Square. Well, here we are. Have your tickets ready, please. Have your tickets ready, please. Good evening, Mr. First Nighter. The usher will show you to your seats. Thank you. We'll go right in. Here we are in excellent seats, and I must say that this is a typically fashionable first-nighter audience. Glamorous ladies are exhibiting fortunes in jewels and furs. There's one of those fabulously expensive mink wraps right across the aisle from me. But let's get down to the business of the evening. I see Frank Worth conducting the famous first-nighter orchestra, and here's the news about the play. It's a brand-new comedy romance called Love is Stranger Than Fiction, written by Irvin Title and co-starring Olin Soule and Barbara Luddy. Mr. Soule is cast as Mr. Blake, the publisher. Miss Luddy plays the role of Louise, his secretary. And the supporting cast is a star-studded roster, too, including Herb Butterfield, Willard Waterman, Virginia Gregg, Jerry Hausner, and other famous names. And now it's just about time for the curtain to rise. Signal for first curtain, the house lights are out, and here's the play. Louise, look at that, will you? What book heads the best sellers in Terre Haute? Purple Petals by Phoebe St. Clair, published by Allsop Brothers. In Pittsburgh, Purple Petals. In Montreal, Hartford, and Gary, Indiana? Purple Petals by Phoebe St. Clair. Yeah, well, don't stand there repeating my words. Benson and Blake is supposed to be the most aggressive publishing house in the business, and we haven't had a bestseller in two years. Then an upstart firm like Allsop Brothers steals this book from right under our noses. Our noses? Mr. Alan Blake, I've been your secretary long enough for you to know that I insist on accuracy from an employer above all else. Well, what do you mean? Didn't we turn down the... We didn't. When I gave you the Purple Petals manuscript, attached to it were three enthusiastic reports from our three readers and a note of mine. Remember what it said? Uh, well, it's easy to say I told you so. It said, all... I wish I'd written this book because it'll sell a million copies. Remember what you said? Well, how on earth do you expect me you to... You said it reminded you of a boiled orange. Very soggy pap colored on the outside. Yeah. So I did, and so it is. Yeah, it's in its eighth printing inside a year. Movie rights sold for half a million, and you turned it down. Uh, must have been smoking hashish. But who is Phoebe St. Clair? If we could only find her and... Tell her that some unauthorized maniac in our office rejected her book. Then maybe we'd have a chance at her next one. Well, you've spent scads of B&B's money for detectives to watch the Alsop offices to see if they could discover who Miss Sinclair is. Uh, I've tried everything and not a clue. She hates publicity. Oh, Louise, I've known for some time that Joe Alsop has offered you everything but their printing presses to work for him. Why do you stick here? Oh, I'm just contrary. 
Or maybe it's that old proverb about rats and a sinking ship. Listen, if we don't get a book that'll sell soon, there just won't be a ship. Look at this manuscript now, Mr. Blake. Oh, frankly, Miss Jones, no. What is it? It's called Hard Flows the Sea by a new writer, Stephen Shad Stronghurst. What do you think of it? Well, honestly, I don't remember when I've been so excited about a book. <laughs> That's what you said about ten acres, and look what that turkey did to us. Well, it's not my opinion alone this time. Both Henderson and Simon have written two pages about it. Well, that's always a help. At least we're sure of three sales if we publish it. Now, what's this? Oh, well, Louise read it, too. That's her comment. Hmm. Last time I said, I wish I'd written this book because it'll sell a million copies. At the risk of repeating myself, I'm repeating myself. Louise. Hmm. Anything else, Mr. Blake? No, no. Just tell the switchboard I'm not to be disturbed for the next three hours. <laughs> Look, Alan, it's after five, and I got a very important date with a very important girl. I don't care if you've got an important date with Rita Hayworth. You stay right here. Oh, well, why me? I'm going to miss the 540. Harry, you know what... you're our publicity director, and this manuscript is so hot, I want you to start thinking about angles pronto. We're putting all our eggs in this 400-page basket. Uh, what's the masterpiece about? Oh, Harry, it's about life and love and all the elements. It's a roisterous, boisterous sea story, and the smell of salt spray stings your eyes as you read it. And after you wipe your eyes, then what? It's Conrad and Jack London and Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, plus women. And in Technicolor. Harry, get on your typewriter. I want the big treatment. Well, I'm glad you agree with me this time that it's a great book. Great book? Why, I couldn't sleep last night just thinking about the possibilities. I'm getting this man Stronghurst down here immediately. Have you contacted him? I'm sending him a wire. I've come to the conclusion that the book must be the story of his own life. The life of a reckless, two-fisted, elemental man who could stun a steer with a blow of his fist. A man who could crush a coconut with one calloused hand. But you've never seen Stronghurst. Maybe he's five foot two and talks with a lisp. Oh. <laughs> you disgust me. Here, write this down. Uh, Stephen Shad Stronghurst, at first sight strikes you as the sort of man about whom legends gather and grow. The story that he uh, crushes coconuts in one calloused hand, apocryphal as it may sound, is the most obvious thing in the world the moment your hand disappears in his immense paw when you're introduced. He uh, is an elemental man. Oh, come in. Will you initial this wire before I send it off, Mr. Blake? Uh, read it to me first, Miss Jones. Mr. Stephen Shad Stronghurst, Box 652, Main Post Office. Your manuscript, Hard Flows the Sea, has vague possibilities. Please drop in this week for a chat. Signed, Alan Blake, Benson and Blake Publishing. You don't want to give Mr. Stronghurst any false hopes, do you? Vague possibilities. The only vague thing about it is who will take the lead when the movies get it, Gary Cooper or Ariel Flynn. Lou, I think you've got a point there. Miss Jones, take out the word vague. And, um, let me see, this week, that's too indefinite. Make it immediately. How does that sound, Lou? Very cordial. Qu that's an idea. Sign it. Very cordially yours. How's that, Lou? Fine. That'll tell him in a lukewarm sort of way that you worship the very keys his calloused fingers type on. 
our mailboxes are strictly private. No information as to identity can be divulged. I'm not asking for information. I want to meet Mr. Stronghurst of Box 652. He ignores my wires and my letters. I just want to speak to the man, that's all. Well, I'm sorry, sir. This is a post office, not a date bureau. Goodbye. So, of all the galling, nerve-wracking experiences, this one... Yes? Mr. Howard Creighton, literary editor of the Daily News, is on the other line, Mr. Blake. Well, put him on. Hello, Howard. How are you? Blake, you've got something in this Stronghurst saga. I like it. I'm going to say so in my column. How about a thumbnail biography of the man? I've sent over a character sketch by special delivery. Is it 10% true? Howard, this is too important a thing to joke about. Steve Stronghurst is a simple, down-to-earth man's man. He's been all over the world, mostly traveling steerage. What else has he written? Well, not a thing. Needed money one day, locked himself up in a cheap bistro in Marseille, and batted this book out on a portable pilfered from the local gendarmerie. That's the kind of fellow he is. What kind of jobs has he held? You name him, we got him. He was a bullfighter in Spain, a medicine man in Africa, a monk in Tibet, and taught physics at USC. <laughs> Sounds fabulous enough. What does he look like? Howard, think of the statue of a Greek god. Put some clothes on it, and that's our Steve Stronghurst. You should see his hands, Howard. Great calloused paws that crush a coconut as easily as you or I do an egg. Well, the egg and we. You don't say. You know, Blake... If you're not careful, you're liable to have a bestseller on your hands. Curtain, second curtain. The first nighters are hurrying down the aisles to their seats. The lights are dimmed, and here's the second act of Love is Stranger Than Fiction. Lou, I'm desperate. I've heard from most of the book critics in the country, and they're all mad about the advanced copies of Hard Flows the Sea. Then why the desperation? You should be jumping with joy. Joy? Two weeks before publication, I haven't even seen the author to confirm any part of the phony stories I've been broadcasting about him. Hasn't bothered answering my last 20 wires. Well, I've been trying to tell you, Mr. Blake, that Mr. Stephen Shad Stronghurst has answered your last desperate, frantic, pathetic telegram. What? Well, why didn't you... For heaven's sake, quick, what does he say? We'll arrive tomorrow, 3 p.m., for interview. Demand absolute privacy. No photographers, no office staff. Wire acceptance of conditions, or else. Or else what? Or else, period. <laughs> he must have run out of words. Of all the nerve. What does he want me to do, shut down for half a day? What does he mean, no photographers? If he, for one solitary minute, thinks that I... 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 Yes? I've run out of words. Wire Okay. Come in, come in. Yes, sir, come right in. Have I the pleasure of addressing... What are you doing here? Shh, Mr. Stronghurst is coming. Louise, I thought I told you to go on home. I promised the man. Right this way, Mr. Stronghurst. Mr. Alan Blake, Mr. Stephen Stronghurst. Well, Lou, you idiot, open the door so he can come in. He is in. Mr. Stronghurst, say something to pop-eyed Mr. Blake. How do you do, Mr. Blake? Will you shake one of my calloused hands? Not this one, this one, the one I use for coconut crushing. <clears throat> if this is your idea of a joke, Louise, it's gone too far, and I order you to open that door this minute. You mean you want me to open the door and leave? I do. You came here against my orders just so you could meet Stronghurst, and I won't stand for it. You'll be here any minute. Miss Turner, leave this office at once. Louise, uh, Miss Turner, you're fired. 
Am I really? Well, now, that's awkward. What shall I do with all those pleading wires you sent me? Of course, if I went down the street to Alsop Brothers, I'd get a much warmer welcome. They're used to publishing bestsellers. Good heavens. Really, Louise, you're... You're fooling. Surely you can't be... Tell me, you're not... You're getting warm. I'm Stephen Shad Stronghurst, and I couldn't even crush a peanut with one hand. Oh. I don't know a Tibetan monk from an Indian medicine man, and I've only seen Marseille in postcards. But I... I still don't understand. I do my research in travel magazines. The salt spray that stung your eyes as you read my novel was stale eau de cologne. Well, it... It seems incredible. The nearest I've come to a notion was five years ago when I tried Shad Row and I didn't like it. But, Louise, when could you have... I write in the evenings and on my weekends, but you wouldn't know that. You've never shown any interest in what I do with my evenings or weekends. Lou, I... I don't know what to say, but it's... It's just wonderful. Hello, Mr. Blank. I just happened to be passing by with my camera and I... Oh, hello, Lou. Say, where's the big shot author? I got my camera all primed and ready, too. Goodbye, Mike. Glad you dropped in. Yeah, but you gave me the signal. You shouted, it's wonderful. So I came in ready to get a couple of fast shots. So, photographers lying in wait outside after you made a solemn promise, Alan Blake, of all the cheap, contemptible... Now, Lou, please, all I want to... Wait a minute, wait a minute. What's the matter with photographers? What's fighting you, kid? I'm fed up private secretary and shoulder to weep on for four years. I give him a novel I've slaved over that he'll make a fortune out of, and he, he lies to me. I'm through. Oh, Louise, now listen to me. I didn't mean to lie to you. You've got my signature on this one, Alan Blake, but from now on, the B&B publishing company can go hang. Benson and Blake Publishing, International Majestic Studios, offer six hundred thousand for movie rights to Heart Flows the Sea. Benson and Blake Publishing must have at least twelve hundred more copies. Heart Flows the Sea, Express, Collect, Rush, National Book Club, Washington D.C. Benson and Blake. Rush thousand copies, hard flows the sea to clear backlog, unfilled orders, advise new printing. Yes, Mr. Blake. I tried Louise Turner's old address, and the superintendent had no idea. Oh, what about the post office? They said all her mail addressed to box 652 is sent out to her address. But it's against the rules. Well, I've simply got to see her. I can't seem to get anything done around here anymore. Thank you, Miss Jones. That's all, Miss Jones. Uh, Miss Jones, ask the switchboard to get me Howard Creighton, literary editor of the Daily News. Mr. Blake, Louise Turner's on the other line. Well, at last, let me speak to her. Hello. Hello, Louise. Alan Blake, if I were in your office right now, I'd slap your face. I... How could you do such a thing? Oh, Lou, now, please, Lou. I was desperate. I couldn't get a hold of you. I had to do something. So you fed the newspapers another pack of lies. I don't mind your telling them I'm Stronghurst, but the nerve Oh, Lou, you... please, don't you understand? I spent a week trying to trace then you. Then you release the yarn about me peddling hard flows the sea to 20 other publishers. Oh. And how, against the judgment of your associates, and more out of sympathy than conviction, you published my book. Louise, I knew that if those fake stories about you were published in the newspapers, you'd get in touch with me. I'm the poor, stupid, struggling author who'd still be living in a garret if it wasn't for Alan Blake, the selfless, altruistic, philanthropic publisher. Oh, Louise, believe me, the only reason I said all that was to make you call me. Right now, there are a lot of things I'd like to call you. But the only reason I did was to say goodbye. 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 <laughs> 
first-nighters are all in their seats, ready for the last act. And there goes the curtain. Alan, as the junior member of Alsop Brothers and as a rival publisher, I'd like to congratulate you on the success of your recent bestseller, Hard Flows the Sea. Lucky stiff. What's wrong with the luck of the Alsop Brothers? Last season you had the giant fell down and this season purple petals. Oh, I'm not complaining. I only begrudge you your blind luck, that's all. We publish her first book, and then she turns around and says number two is not for us. <laughs> Loyalty, she says. Who's she? Phoebe St. Clair, of course. Who? <laughs> In the way you spent money trying to track down the author, who was none other than your own private secretary. That was the biggest laugh. Hey, just a minute. What are you talking about? <laughs> I didn't turn it down. I published Hard Flows the Sea. Hard Flows the Sea? Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking about Purple Petals. <laughs> Lou said you yourself, next did. <laughs> and what happened? <laughs> she dropped in our lap the biggest moneymaker since Gone with the Wind. <laughs> oh, Louise, is Phoebe St. Clair, too. Oh, yes, it was very funny, wasn't yeah, well, it? Well, after that first brush-off, how you persuaded her to give you a Hard Flows the Sea is... <laughs> One of those unsolved mysteries. Yes, well, I didn't expect you to understand it. Personally, I think she's carrying this loyalty thing too far. She worked for you for four years, yes, but, but so what? Yeah, don't think I didn't know you were trying to bribe her to work for you, because I... No, 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 she said. Uh, Joe, in spite of everything, I'm offering my next novel to B&B. I, I owe that much to them. She calls you Joe. Well, certainly, we're very close friends, as a matter of fact, Al, I, I have a surprise for you. <laughs> Louise and I are going to be married. <laughs> married? Yeah, you know what happens when boy meets girl meets preacher. <laughs> She's going to marry you, and she calls that loyalty. Oh, now, now just a minute, Blake. Oh, no, I, I didn't mean that. I wish you all the luck in the world, but, uh... Oh, uh, <clears throat> you're, um... You're going to have some sort of party to announce the coming event to the trade, aren't you? Well, it might be a good idea, Alan. Sure, sure. Of course, you won't be able to have it in her place. Lou's apartment is so small and uh, so out of the way, I hear. Huh? Oh, small, yes, but her place is nearer this club than mine is. Oh, that's right. Sure, Barkman Place, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, dear, you've lost your memory. Hmm? She's living on Northburn Crescent. Northburn. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh, how could I forget? <laughs> yeah, Northburn Crescent, of course. Let me see. It's uh, the numbers. Uh... Oh, 614. That was it. Six... Well, really? You're only 600 numbers off. Huh? Louise is at 1246, Northburn Crescent. 1246. Oh, certainly 1246. Yes. yes, what was I thinking of? Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Furthermore, I haven't the faintest idea how you discovered where I live, but I didn't invite you. Thanks. I don't mind if I do have a seat. Why, it's a very comfortable place you have here, Lou. Or have I said that before? You've gone over all the standard openings. Now you can leave. I've known you for almost five years, Lou, and I've always known in the back of my mind that when I was ready to let go and paint the town red, I was going to ask the union for an assistant painter like you to help me. That particular part of your story you can include in your next book of collected fairy tales, Mr. Blake. For four years, I was part of the office furniture to you, like your desk. The only difference was you never scratched a match on me. Lou, I don't scratch matches on my desk anymore. 
I used that fancy lighter you gave me last Christmas. Mr. Blake, isn't it rather odd you're making nice speeches to me after you discover I'm both Stephen Stronghurst and Phoebe Sinclair? <clears throat> the only thing I discovered is that I'm in love with you. Now, what do you say to that? I dimple shyly and I murmur that you say the sweetest things. <laughs> At this point, am I supposed to act like Eve in purple petals and fall into your strong young arms with a strangled sob? Well, if you did, you'd be able to write a better book than Purple Petals. How Phoebe St. Clair and Stephen Shad Stronghurst can be one and the same person, Here I'd... is something easier. Your touching declaration of your feeling about me is three days too late. Three days ago, I decided to marry Joe Alsop. But you can't marry that... that... You can't marry Alsop when you're... Well, when you're... When I'm what? When you're in love with me, that's when. Why, you overbearing, conceited, rude, vain... I love you too, dear. <laughs> Why do you think that dill pickle proposed to you? Because he likes the tilt of your pretty neck when you're taking dictation? Maybe he wants to marry me because... Certainly not. You think he wants to marry you because the tip of your silly nose wrinkles when you laugh? He wants you because he wants to make sure your literary output goes to Alsop Brothers, that's why. Because you're dishonest and conniving, you think everybody is. Joe Alsop is everything you aren't. He's honest and upright, steadfast and reliable. Yeah, and a stodgy, complacent, cigar-swelling hippopotamus. <laughs> That proves you don't know what you're talking about. There is no such animal. All right. All right, Mary. But before you do, tell him you've just finished a new book you're going to let me publish. And then see how fast the love light in his eyes drops into a deep freeze. All right, I'll do that. I'll show you. Yeah, and let me be the first to know the happy outcome. Phone me tomorrow. I told you that the Martin correspondence is in Mr. Benson's office, Mr. Blake. Where are the Goodley files, Miss Jones? Where are the Lessing files, Miss Jones? Where are any files? All the files are in your right-hand drawer, Mr. Blake, where they've been for years. Hmm. Why didn't anybody tell me I had an important appointment with Gibson yesterday? Mr. Blake, on your appointment pad, circled in red and underlined, there was a note. I've no time to look at my appointment pad. Miss Jones, are you sure Louise hasn't phoned yet? Go on out to the switchboard and check the line to my office. Maybe it's out of order. Maybe... Well, she didn't have to slam the door that hard. Mr. Blake. Miss Jones, I can't wait. I want you... Louise... I see you haven't changed at all in your old habitat. Hello, Lou. I, I, well, welcome back to the old habitat. How are you? I'm a lot better than you thought I'd be at this time today, Mr. Blake. I told Joe exactly what you said. Oh, you did? And Joe changed his mind. I knew he would. We were going to be married in two weeks. Now he wants to get married Monday. Oh. I, well, Lou, I want to wish you, both of you, all the luck in the world. Thank you. Oh, by the way, as far as business goes, you can relax. I've decided to give my next novel to B&B if they want it. Well, that's very kind of you, Louise, and Benson will be very happy, but uh, there's only going to be one B in the name of this firm. I've decided to sell out. I'm not happy here. I need a rest. Oh. Well, there's nothing much left to say, is there? I, uh, I'll drop around sometime, both of you, won't you? Uh, tell me... How did you know the tip of my nose wrinkles when I laugh? Well, you just notice those things, I suppose, about, about people you like, I suppose. Do you 
really think I have a pretty neck? Now, what are you trying to do, Louise? I've said all I'm going to say, except that Joe is a very lucky man. Well, he doesn't seem to think so. I told you what he said. You want to know what I said? No, I'd rather not, Lou. Let's just part the brush. I said if I married him Monday, I'd be committing bigamy. Bigamy? What on earth do you mean? Bigamy is having more than your legal rations of husbands, isn't it? <laughs> well, if I become Mrs. Allen Blake on Sunday, there's some law that'd frown Louise. on Louise. Louise, dear, did you say... <laughs> Darling! Please take me in your arms, kiss me, then go out and get a haircut and a marriage license. <laughs> Please, darling, do I have to do all those things? I... Oh, Angel. Now, now, dear, I said you're to kiss me and mm. go out and uh, get a haircut, darling. I, I said kiss me and just kiss me, that's all. <laughs> Demanding on pause. Listen to them applause. Next week, there's a corral full of Western fun for you and your family when another original play will be presented from the Little Theater. It's called Oh, Bury Me Not, a comedy romance you'll want to hear. Remember, next week, same time, same station. Join us then, won't you? And in the meantime, ladies, you'll never know how pretty you can be until you try Magic Touch. And now we move out of the theater and into the street. Is your cab, Mr. First Nighter? Thank you. Good night. Campana's First Nighter program, starring Barbara Luddy and Olin Soule, is a copyrighted radio feature. Tonight's play was pure fiction and did not refer to real people or actual events. Love is Stranger Than Fiction, a play from the First Nighter program in the winter of 1948. It brings us to the end of this edition of the big broadcast. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineers Kenny Pirog and Mike Kidd, this is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, and please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you as friend of friend. I'm sorry it's through. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too Let's make a date for next Sunday night I'm here to stay will be my delight To sing again, bring again The things you want me to I love to spend each Sunday with you.